Welcome to Honest Talk about heartbreak, dating, and relationships. Relationships. The podcast helping you navigate your path to happy ever after with your host, Rob McPhillips. Tonight, we're talking about the hill you'll die on. And that probably sounds a little bit, um, it's not a very descriptive um, thing, but really what it's about is what, what are you really willing to fight about and what is a meaningless fight for you? So the... So I had a look at where did it where did it come from, like the hill that you'll die on, and it seems to be seems to have come from um, nineteen sixty nine in nineteen sixty nine in the Vietnam War. There was a battle for a hill, and the Americans lost. They say six hundred and thirty Marines or what whatever infantry, and the Vietnam say 1500 and essentially they were fighting for a hill that had no strategic value that had no real benefit and they gave up on it when it got when it became hard to to win so um it was edward kennedy um who was a senator then who who named it hamburger hill because basically the infantry men who who were killed were, were basically treated like mince meat and so the hill that you will die in is represents like if you have to if you have to um, like in the in the military having a hill is an advantage because it's hard to fight up and so to win to win a hill means that it has to be something worth conquering now in relationships. Are the fights that you're going to have worth fighting for, or are they just something you've got in a pattern of squabbling about? Are they meaning, meaningless battles? And then in life, there's really fights that we, we, the, the gain is not worth the fight. But there has to be something that powers your life, something that's important to you. Because if you don't have the hill that you're willing to die on, then you don't really have something that gives you, is going to give you a source of passion and enthusiasm. So the idea of the hill that you're going to die on is about having some sense of purpose and it's also having some sense of identity about what your life's about. So these are the things that become our North Star. So first, though, I'm curious, because you were talking about what were you were passionate about when you were young. So does anyone want to share what they wanted to be? Because I didn't hear anyone else's. Okay, I can. I don't mind sharing. So we were talking about. Um, so I, I related it also with job roles actually. But when I was really young, I liked. Uh, I had the dream of traveling quite a lot. So I wanted to see the world, and that was like because I thought like such a big world, and I want to see it and get to know it. And I always found it the best way to 
meet other cultures and understand them. And then it kind of evolved and I related it with journalism. But I always been passionate about animals, which is something that I haven't mentioned. And I did quite a few rescues when I was back home. So that lasted until I moved it to the UK. And only at the age of 15, I thought of becoming a social worker. So I wanted to do something that was meaningful and help others. So, yeah, I think that was that. And so far, like, it remains like I still want to travel loads. I, I still love animals and I want to work well help as much as I can and I still work as in care in the healthcare sector so I'm still doing all of those things well I wanted to be everything that I read as I was explaining to my group so any book that I read that was really Ah, so I went from medicine to archaeology to veterinary medicine to God, he knows anything. Um, and uh, of course, it was a bit of a, what do you call it? A, a toss up. Things that girls were supposed to do versus things that girls weren't supposed to do became part of the family thing, but that I ignored. And so eventually I became a marine zoologist, then an aquaculturist growing fish. And now I do science and technology. So I've gone all the way around. So, yeah. So now I do science and technology policy. So I look at strange and emerging technologies, robotics and AI and genetics and lovely, wonderful, futuristic things, which I absolutely enjoy. Good. So what's changed this is a general question. What's changed from childhood to now? Reality. Okay, that's <laughs> yes, a healthy dose of reality, yes. <laughs> um, so is it reality or... So when I was young, I wanted to be a professional footballer, you know, like lots of kids. And then somewhere along the lines, I realised... One, that maybe I didn't have the skill, and two, more than that, I wasn't prepared to put in the work for it. But then also th other things come into your life, so there are competing forces that tend to moderate or modulate, whichever the word is, um, moderate your your um, passions, you know, some of your passions, because... Um, they start to compete for time and attention and also passions too. Okay. Um, okay. So one of the questions, um, not to discuss now, but for later, is... The things that moderate and the things that stopped and the things that changed, um, are they real or are they things that we put in there? So, um, can you like, was it really reality? Sorry, Nicole. Sorry, can, can you repeat that, please? Uh, yeah, the things that, the things that stopped us 
were they um, really barriers or were they challenges that we weren't either weren't prepared to 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 work enough for or we gave up on our dreams because they became challenged? I think in some respects um, it was more um, compromise. In some some things were um, based on compromise, but I also think that there are some things that you can't control. Um, for example, uh, competition in the workplace or in education you may wish to do something, a particular course, but you can't do it because the competition is so great. That's out of your control. Well, and that moderates so that's, behavior, that changes that, your, your. That's behavior. the bit. That's the bit I'm 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 thinking about. Right. So the competition means it became it became harder. Right. But someone has to win, and if it's really your passion. And if you went all out and really committed to it. It so, also depends on the stage of life that you're at, because when you're at home with your parents, the um, conditions that you live in, in other words, whether your parents, for example, if it's a very competitive um, thing that you want to do and say your parents can't afford it, or they can't afford extra tuition to enable you to compete, then, then that's not something that you can control. It's 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 your reality, which tempers which has to temper your behavior or your your ability to realize your passion. Okay. Versus when you're an adult and you you have you have more choices to make in terms of whether you really want to do it and you can afford or you make the sacrifice in terms of you know time and money yeah it's about opportunity isn't it as well and what yeah. you're saying about sacrificing sort of weighing up things hmm. to do. The, the, the yeah the, the the bit i want to get at is is that when we believe the reality more, so there there are always always examples like the pursuit of happiness. You know, you know that film where is it Will Will Smith, isn't it? Where he fights yeah. through all the odds. That was based on a true story. And you always hear like Olympians who've had every hardship and and yet they found the way and they've kept going. Is it just that we start to believe reality more than the opportunity? Um. Is it what? Sorry. Is it that? Um, so it seems so hard to, to achieve. Mm. And so we can rationalize that by saying, um, uh, you know, it, it would take too much. There's too much competition. It's, 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 I need to have more tuition, all of those things. Um, but the one, like the 1% or the one person that's really, mm. um, dedicated um i mean when you if you think about someone like well i mean I, I, I don't know his story but michael spinks or someone like that who's so committed um i think lewis hamilton has a similar story 
I think he he his father his father worked three jobs to enable him to race when yeah, he was young. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Um and I'm trying to think of other people like that, but there are people that despite every you know, they should have just listened and should have given up by all rational reason. Um, but they still found a way. Um Anyway, um, to start off, I just want to try, we'll try something different. But before you go, Rob, um, there is another side to that in that um, having missed out on a particular path that you really desire, you embark on, you have to embark on another journey, so to speak. I hate that word, but for, for what it's worth. Um, and in some instances, there are people who have found greater fulfillment than the original passion that they thought that they could not um, live without. Because that happened to a friend of mine who, um, in my class at high school A-levels, he failed all of his the A-levels that we did because he wanted to do sciences, he wanted to be a doctor. But he was very, he was very, he was a very committed Christian. And even at high school, he had started preaching at church. And on failure of the A-levels, he decided that he was going to go into the seminary uh, to get his education. And he rose to become the second highest in his denomination in the church eventually, and became a principal of, of the seminary that he went to. Whereas if he had chosen sciences, he would have been mediocre at best probably. Yeah, I yeah I, I that that's really what I'm what I, um, I hadn't articulated it or even thought of it in that way, but yeah, it's really about is it sometimes it's the right thing to, to give up and to chase something else because sometimes things that we have an interest in or a passion for are running to lead us to something else, but sometimes we give up on the thing that and and I don't think there's only one thing like it's not a um, it's not something that if we miss that, then we've always missed the boat. But I think it, the the key distinction is, are we giving up for practical reasons because we think it's too difficult or are we giving up because it's, it's a real change of passion? Right. So we're just going to try something else to start with. If everyone's sitting comfortably. So, and if you want to put your camera off for this, it's fine. Um, so maybe you should just sit relaxed. And focus on your breath. So we're going to try and breathe in through the nose for four. And out through the mouth for eight. So in for four out for eight, in for four, out for eight. Now imagine that your life is like a train line laid down on the floor and imagine that you could float up so you could see the whole line from beginning to end from where you are. And imagine that you're looking where you are now, 
looking down at the you that's down in the life. And you can see from where you are, there's certain things, certain relationships, certain roles that you have to play, certain ideas and beliefs that are keeping you chained down, keeping you limited, stuck. And from where you are, just see if you can see which ones those are. And then look and see the ideas and the opportunities and the relationships and the roles that are about that could energize you and lift you up, which already are and which could. And then when you're when you've looked at that and when you're ready, just float to the end of the line. And then look down and think about when your life reaches the end, what are the things that will really have mattered to you? What will you really care about? And then as you float back, Think about which are the things that are holding you back will impact on that and which are the opportunities or the things that could help you rise higher are open to you. And then when you're ready, just float back down into now. Okay, if everyone's ready, uh, we're going to go into two breakout rooms. Um, and just to talk about what do you think is holding you back now? What is going to matter? And what opportunities are there for you? You're muted. We can join. You're going to join. We were discussing. <laughs> no, yeah, we can join a meeting at breakup room. Okay. Breakup, breakout. <laughs> break <up. laughs> okay. So, um, yeah, I'm gonna. You're gonna get a, a link when the uh, when it says it's gonna close. Just stay in. Carry on your conversation. It's just like a one minute warning. Welcome back. So. Um, we were talking in the breakout rooms and all of life, how we experience it is, is about the reality that we see and the meaning that we make between that. And all of that is a story. Everything that we perceive, like the temperature, like when we see someone doing something, how we are, all of that is all of perception is factual but we can't operate on facts and so we have to make those facts into some kind of story and the story that we tell determines our experience so the story that we tell is the difference between giving up or being um lewis hamilton or or someone who's 
fought through every um, obstacle. And I'm, I'm thinking, when I'm talking about that, I come to mind uh, Frederick, I can't, I can't remember his name, but um, it was a famous slave. And so basically his story was that he was born um, illegitimate son of a slave. Um, she'd been raped, I think, by the master. So um, he was banished to another uh, plantation. Um, and so he's someone that really should have had no, no chance of ever achieving anything. Um, but just through circumstance, the, the plantation he was on had a, a, like a kindly, the wife of the master was quite kindly and taught him how to read. Um, which was actually against the rules and so he was later he taught others and so he was banished for for doing that because they weren't allowed to read and he waited years and was eventually was able to find to escape um and he escaped and um one day he was like this group took him in who looked after him uh, I think in New York, and they put on talks and gatherings. And one day he just stood up and talked, and he just had a talent um, for telling stories. And so anyway, this was harnessed, and he became, um, ultimately he became he one of the president's advisors and campaigned for the abolition of slavery. Um, I don't know if anyone knows the story. And can it's Frederick, it. Doug Frederick Douglass. That's the one, yeah. 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 The um, one that Trump said he knew. <laughs> <laughs> that he's a good guy. It's <laughs> too, too late, wasn't it? <laughs> um, but yeah, such an inspiring story. Um, and so there's, and it's like Viktor Frankl in, in Man's Search for Meaning talks about in the concentration camps how some people were kind, some people were mean some people were happy some people were sad and it all depended on the story the or in his words the meaning that we made of of the circumstance so really um what's re what what really matters to us is the story that we tell and there's a story that will make us miserable, there's a story that will lead to failure, there's a story that will make us give up, there's a story that will make us bitter. If you look at things like the red pill theory um, and there's a feminist equivalent, um, I can't remember the name of it, but all these kind of men go in their own way. Um, and all of these are, are stories that people have made of reality as they see them, which have led them to be bitter, which have led them to be isolated and cut themselves off and then there's other people who through every kind of hardship through every kind of um like everywhere where life told them that they couldn't do it they still kept believing they still kept trying um and eventually um found success and so the difference is all about the stories. So, okay, so we've got a small group tonight. So 
we can either stay here and, and talk about stories together or go into more intimate breakouts where you can talk um, more like one-to-one. I'd like to hear other people's stories. Yep. Let's stay here. Yeah. yeah. Census to stay here. Okay. Right. So in what we've done today already, in the conversations you've had, have there been, like, have you had any insights of the stories that you have been telling yourself, the story that you are telling yourself, and how that will change how you feel and how you act? Yeah, I was saying that um, I had a succession of uh, um, failures or setbacks and at a certain point after initially being optimistic, I just gave up. And I I can see now that I have self-limiting beliefs, but I was questioning how do do we overcome those self-limiting beliefs? Well, I think first of all, it's it's, it's recognising it's a story. Um. Like all of life is a story. Like every religion is a story, um, and so different religions have different stories. Different um, people believe, and we kind of vote for the story that we we want. And a story can be true, or a story can be um, a story, but we don't know um, until we have evidence. So when you like at the point you gave up. It was because you did because you lost faith in your story, like the story that would give you hope and enthusiasm. So I'm guessing that was because the evidence that you had plus the doubts that you had yourself about your ability to to meet them led to you given up would that be accurate yeah so what is so it's it's in that in that circumstance it's too big a jump to go from like like i can't do it to yeah i'm gonna do it but what is the story that you could believe I could believe it's possible. So it's possible for someone else? Yeah. Do you believe that you have the ability to develop the skills, develop the capabilities to be that person? Yeah. So I think the thing is that beliefs, most of us do what's easy. And I don't mean like we consciously choose but it's much easier to have the habit that you've already already had. So if you've grown up and your parents have told you, um, you know, or rather your brother or sister is better than you, look how good they are, look, look at you. That can work two ways. So some people can, it, it can mean that people have like this burning desire to prove themselves um, and always feel the need to achieve more and more like to prove their parents wrong or it can be the story of um 
like, uh, yeah, I'm not good enough. I never was good enough. Um, I was never that good, so I'll give up. So I think it's it's just being aware of what story is driving you. So it's when when those beliefs come up, it's been it's about being aware of it, and then okay, so this is so those we believe it because it's it's easier to believe, and it's easy to believe because either we've been told it a lot or we believe it ourselves. And if we believe it ourselves, it's because of the story. And I suppose we have to challenge those beliefs as well. Yeah. Um, so I think what we have to do with the story is we have to separate the story that's objective. Um, so uh, by objective, I mean it's fact. We, we can see it. It's, it's provable. And then the rest is anything that isn't provable is subjective. And subjective is, is just a preference. Yeah. And uh, when, when you were saying about evidence, I mean, we can look for counter evidence that instead of arguing for our limitations, that supports the possibility that we can do it as well. Hmm. So, so, for example, in that one, um, have you ever heard of growth mindset? So Carol Dweck's work on fixed mindset versus growth mindset means that um, what they found was that people with a fixed mindset believed that you were either born able to good at something and you could do it or you or you weren't. And it's to do part of it was to do with um, how how you're raised. So children that are praised. Um, for like, oh, you're so good at this. Oh, you're good at this. When they failed, so they developed a fixed mindset because they believed that they were just naturally good at something. And when they failed at something, they thought, oh, I just can't do that. And so they would give up. Whereas people, children who were praised for the effort they put in believed that the that they could they had what they call a growth mindset where they believed that they could change they could learn skills and so they when they face challenges they um continued because they believed that they could change it yeah i think i think that's a powerful key actually is is the mindset that with mm. the uh effort and the opportunity and the hard work we can learn to do something and i think that's really key so do you do you feel um like from that you can like change that story and yeah i think that coming at it from the growth mindset uh sort of framework and believing that i can learn i feel that i can challenge stories that i've had that have held me back mm. and accumulate evidence that supports that i can learn and that it's possible and then move forward from there Hmm. See, I think even even science is a story because um, science comes from a particular viewpoint, um, and so in a, in any like if you look at the research, there's always a for and against, and so you can still believe whatever you choose to believe um, because most fields of science you have people for and against. And so ultimately, whatever we believe is, is a choice anyway. 
Does anyone else want to talk about a story or a story that helps or hinders? Yeah, um, if I may. Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> I'm, again, I'm not on the name tag, but I'm Alex. Um, so it, just what you said then, Rob, about kind of growth mindset versus fixed mindset, um, sort of it, it struck a nerve with me. Um, I feel like I... I certainly grew up with kind of ideas of what I was good at, which you know, I, I think kind of I've been I've been blessed with the things I can do. Um, but you know, for instance, I I believed right up until kind of my mid twenties that I just wasn't any good at any sport of any description or any kind of um, any kind of physical activity, um, and. And yeah, I feel like it was just kind of something where I always just believed in myself that this is something that I'm no good at. Um, and and the thing, the thing that became interesting for me was I started to, so I started to do a bit of um, a bit a few different things. Uh, I started playing football with um, with some friends from work. Um, I'm, <clears throat> I'm a reasonably uh, reasonably regular swimmer now. Normally, kind of um, non lockdown and. And the thing that changed was that, or I suppose what you would kind of say, the, the story that I wrote for myself was that I I kind of changed what I was looking to get out of it, I guess. You know, it stopped being about, well, you know, can I, you know, can I shoot and score a goal from the halfway line? I, I don't think I scored a goal in my first two years of playing with work. Um, you know, it frankly wasn't the point. Um, you know, can I swim 100 metres in under 90 seconds? It, it doesn't matter. Like, you know, I'm not I'm not there to be better than anybody else if I come away from that feeling like I've enjoyed it and, and like I've had a good time, um, then, then actually I, you know, my previous kind of mindset about how I, how I kind of interpreted it and, and what I was looking for was just completely, um, completely orthogonal to, to what my actual enjoyment would be. Um, and, and yeah, so I mean, the, the, you know, I I still, you know, I'm never, I'm still never going to be an Olympic sports person, and and you know, frankly, I don't think I ever was going to be. But um, but it's it sort of see, yeah, exactly. It sort of I sort of feel silly now looking back and thinking, well, you know, what was I hoping to get out of this? I, you know, did I, did I need to be any good at it to get something out of it? Um, and yeah, I guess you know, my my only regret is kind of not starting on that journey sooner and and you know maybe getting involved in some more stuff earlier at university maybe um yeah i don't know um can i ask what prompted you to have such a shift in how you saw yourself um i think honestly what it was so i <laughs> So full disclosure, when I was at school, um, I was picked last for every single sports team ever, ever, ever. <laughs> um, and, uh, and it sort of became a running joke. Um, and then when I started working, the company that I, I still work for, um, we're a bunch of software IT nerds. So you know what? I was there with a bunch of other people who'd all been picked last for every sports team ever, ever, ever. Um, and so when we, you know, when we first went for, you know, hired a local football pitch and and just went to go and have a kick around, you know, as mates, um, there was probably only one person there who could actually, you know, had any kind of foot eye coordination at all. <laughs> um, so, you know, I kind of, I, I, 
I guess you could say I kind of owe it to that really that I kind of reevaluated and, and looked, you know, looked at myself and and kind of yeah. I think I think it was that. I don't think it's I don't think it's a mental jump I would have made on my own. Actually, um, you know, I, I owe it to the fact that there were other like-minded people there who um, who kind of showed me that you could you could do something and get a huge amount out of it without necessarily being any good at. I'm still terrible at football to this day. I I, I don't understand how I'm so bad, but I enjoy it hugely. <laughs> it, it sounds like you're saying you could see the possibility for yourself by seeing it in another. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Use them yeah. as a mirror, as it were. I think so, and and same goes for other things as well. Um, like, you know, I, I enjoy running now as well, and that's that's something that I, again, I took from you know took from colleagues who kind of gave me the gave me the push and and said you know well why don't you try this? It doesn't matter if you, you know, it doesn't matter if you rubbish at it. Who cares? <laughs> um, so yeah, yeah, no, I think I think you're absolutely right. I think we have to evolve from our conditioning of self when from when we are small, wherein we are expected to do things to earn the praise of others. So the pleasure that we learn is that pleasure comes to us when we please others, when we pass our exams, when we do well, when we come first in the race, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think, I suspect what you have done is you have learned that the end, that the pleasure is actually derived from within self rather than external um, praise from others. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would completely agree with that. And it happens to all of us, I, I think, and maybe subconsciously as we get older, we um, and maybe loosen our ties with those who we aimed to please so much, we give ourselves some room for self-actualization in in accepting that something actually pleases us yeah. it doesn't have to it doesn't have to meet with anybody else's expectations but it gives us genuine pleasure we can actually have room to acknowledge that i think yeah no i totally but agree yeah. I, I remember being at school and oh my goodness gracious if you know my grandfather would line us up, all the grandchildren. And if you didn't come in the first five in your class, oh, good grief, you suffered. You were you were just humiliated. It was not a nice, it was not nice. Yeah. And one or two of us suffered from it because it put you down. It, you have to be really strong to, to, to be able to... Um, to get through that. But I have a positive story, which I think has helped me from, I was probably about four. I was too young to go to school, but I was bored. So in the village where I grew up, there was a little infant school, which was um, uh, at the home of my, um, some my mother, some cousin or the other, some Great, whatever. Anyhow, so I was allowed to go to the school. And I'm one of the 10%. I'm left-handed. So <laughs> you go, and the first thing that some teacher wants to do is um, you need to conform and <laughs> write. <laughs> You're going to be taught to write with the left hand. Well, my mother, all four foot ten of her, 
just and she was called yeah, in those days you know people yeah you would be called miss miss so and so miss beryl came which is my mother came and let them know in on no uncertain terms that i am not to be troubled i am left-handed and i will write with my, learn to write with my left hand and until now i think that has resonated with me in that i do not need to conform and i can stand up <laughs> rob is laughing <laughs> and i will be myself <laughs> and i will not take rubbish i will speak out so that i think started me on this road <laughs> yes rob <laughs> so I think I think um, Alex brought up a really good point in terms of about in, that we should really just do things just for enjoyment because you know when I look at so I, I had a completely different story in that um, I was naturally really good at football um, and so I was like picking the team I was one of the captains um, and so like primary school um, and we had a like our, our Cubs football team was the best. It was the best time I played football. Um, and like we we won a double for like three years in a row. Um, and so, but for me, it was like, I was really lazy. I was like, just give me the ball. I'm not going to tackle anyone. I'm not going to run around. Just give me the ball. And so then when I got to high school, um, it became more about the ones who were going to work. And, and so I got left out of the team. Um, and I didn't make the team. Um, and I just, so I looked at it, right, I'm giving up. It's not worth the effort. I'm, I'm going to give up. And I didn't play football again until uh, college. I just played a little bit in college. And I never really played because, um, yeah, just really because I didn't get picked for the team. Um, and so, again, I made it about, and I suppose... In that sense, I gave up because um, because I was, I was scared of failing. I didn't want to be seen to fail. Um, and I think this affects us in life. It's like we don't we don't go for the jobs that we want because we're we're scared of being seen to fail. We don't go. <clears throat> we don't have the relationships we want because we're scared to ask people. Um, and really, all of that is a story. And it's like, it's like it's come out um, that, um, and, and for example, like one of the other things that came to mind was, was Malcolm Gladwell's work of Outliers. I don't know if, if everyone's read that. Um, where really, we used to believe in the theory that some people were great. And this is why rock stars, film stars get asked for their philosophical and political opinions that they have no qualification for. Because we think if someone's great in one thing, they're great in, in every field. And, and then we get disappointed when they say something that they don't have the yeah. qualification to say. Yeah, that's that guide to, to hashtag physics. Um, but Malcolm Gladwell really popularised the, the 10,000 hours theory of 
um, practice and opportunity. Um, like Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and all of those had specific opportunities, specific time and, and specific skills. So, for example, like um, I think I was good at football when I was young because I played very young. And because I played very young, like my brother um, hated football, would never do it because he never, he never, he had no interest in that. And so then at the time when people do start playing more competitively, he wasn't very good. So he thought, oh, I'm not going to do that. And I think a lot of people um, had that same experience just because it wasn't something they were interested in. They never did it the first time they tried against others. I mean, Malcolm Gabel talks about most tennis players, hockey or hockey players tend to be the ones who are born in about September to December because they're almost a year older. So by and at like age of 11 or 12, that makes a huge difference because they're bigger, they've, they've had a little bit longer. So they're the ones who get picked. They're the ones who get all the extra training. Um, and so like three years later, they're so much better than the other the other people. Um, so, okay, so, so this, this leads to a question of what did you do? Like so many, so many relationship dynamics are about when we're born, I think our parents look at us and we're just, especially if we're the first child, it's like you're this magical being and everything you do is the first time they've ever seen a baby do that. Um, and you can see like you, like your first child, you've got loads of pictures of. Your second child, it's like, where are the pictures? They go, where are the pictures of me? Well, we were too busy to chasing this one. We You were the second one, you're not the novelty. So I think there's that adulation and we look at, um, I think we're all, always trying to get that back. And by the time we're three or we're five, we're just a little shit who keeps doing things wrong. Um, and they're like, oh, stop doing that. Stop behave this. And then there's this like control of you must be this, you must be this. And I think a lot of us are trying to get the love and the adulation that we didn't get. And also parents are people and People are busy, people are preoccupied, people are dealing with their own stuff. And so often they're not, we're not, well, parents aren't the best to their children. So when you look back, did you feel the need to prove something to someone? And did that affect your, like what you did? Like, did you try to do something to please someone? Did you try, to um, or not do something because it would displease them. I needed to escape. Mm. I was the, I was a trophy daughter, so I was to be kept in cotton wool until the perfect husband came along, who met all the right criteria. This rebel girl didn't meet any of them. I just had to escape. So that 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 can also be suffocating because things that you would like to do, you're not supposed to do. I can't ride a bicycle because young ladies weren't supposed to ride a bicycle because you're going to graze your knee and you're going to break this and you're going to break your teeth and you're going to do whatever, whatever. So after the tricycle went, no, you can't get on a bicycle. 
for example. So it's the cotton wool thing that can also restrict what you do. And it to the point of, oh, you can't talk to that person because they're not good enough. You can't talk to those people. You can't be with these people. You can't be friends with X and Y. So control. And I think my my ultimate, <laughs> what kept me going every day was just how to escape. <laughs> so going to high school, boarded school, away from home was perfect. <laughs> that I dreaded it when, when end of term came because I'm going back into this wretched cage. So I read, for example, I read out all of my junior library by the time I was 12. I was reading adult books because I was totally bored. Mm. And that, yeah. that in itself can restrict a person's development. Yeah. yeah. And I've heard of people as well, because their home life wasn't happy, they just needed to get, they needed to escape um, and just find the first person who, like, seems opposite. And sometimes you can pick completely the opposite person because you think it's going to be different and then you just walk into like a different fire, like out of the frying pan into the fire. Well, my situation was that um, when you've got nine, nine, nine females and one male, in other words, one uncle, eight aunts and my mother, because my grandfather had eight girls before he had a boy and he had to have a boy. So it's all females and they get married and they have children, then it's a hell of a competition. Who has the best looking? Who's got the brightest? Who's got the this one? Blah, 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 blah. And it's just, oh, oh, this one. Didn't, and it, if, if, you, if you do something odd, it's the talk. It's in those days before um, telephones were really common in Jamaica, um, the letter writing would be of such anything that you did, and then it would be a family discussion. So you felt pressure from... Every every angle, so your life was an open book for discussion at every family gathering. And those of us who didn't perform as well as the others would be embarrassed. And that humiliation can go with you for the rest of your life. It defines you. Mm. And so you, you have to make up your mind from early whether or not you're going to succumb to it or you're going to break free. And I be, and I'm the rebel in the family, so <laughs> I broke free. I did everything that I was not supposed to do. <laughs> Even now, I'm still, I'm still, I'm, I'm still shocking my ninety, my ninety-year-old uncle. He's like, my child, what else? What else are you going to do? Because it, that's the only way to survive. I find if you conform, then you'll be buried. Did you find that served you or did you find it made you veer off too far in the other direction? No, I think it has spurred me to be who I am in terms of the things that I have done. For example, when I left university, um, 
my mother said to me, I thought you were coming back home to live and you would get a nice job. Um, and she had this lovely dentist that she had earmarked as her future husband. Oh, you would not know. And so yeah, I had to come home. And I said, I'm not coming home. No, 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 no. So what are you going to do? I thought you would like to be, um, you know, in some office or the other. And I said, no, 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 I'm going to go and work on a fish farm. Oh, heavens, mud, dirt, you're going to get burnt up in the sun. You're not going oh, all of all of those things. And I just said, well, that's what I want to do. And so I did. And that became a source of pride eventually. Oh, my daughter. Oh, you know, she's doing the same. This unusual thing. So never give up. Never give up. It, it can work. Just, just, just go do it. So, yeah. See, I think I think that's the thing is that people take score too early. So, um, for example, yeah, I mean, I mean, in that example, if we're going to go back to the football example, um, if we take and score, um, like I, I was playing football, so Alex wasn't, but when we go back to, to being a bit older, I wasn't playing you know, like at work because I was scared I wasn't good enough. Because I failed in that, after thinking that you are, and then feeling realizing that you're not. Um, whereas Alex changed that story, and he was playing. And it's, I think, the thing about why we give up. Um, and to go back to to what Betty said is is because we we take score too early. And what, like the the hill that you're going to die on, the concept of that is it doesn't matter if you fail or if you win. It's about you have to do it because it's it's in you. So I didn't say this before, but I, um, I'm thinking in terms of that, like, has any, ever, everyone seen Braveheart? Yep, some. So, so no. essentially it's the story, it's the fictionalised story of William Wallace. And he has to... Like his wife gets killed by the English have conquered Scotland. Um, and he willingly gives up his life for what he believes. That's the hill he's going to die on for freedom. And then I'm thinking 300. Does everyone know 300? Where they know there's only 300 of them to fight a million Persians, ancient Greeks. Um, but they're that's the hill they're willing to die on for. That's what Sparta means. Um, yeah, so it's, it's about not taking score too early. So, yeah, so, so we were talking about um, not being proved to your parents and uh, not taking score too early. So is there anywhere where you feel like you've taken score too early? When, when you say taking score too early, do you mean uh, like you've given up because like when I was saying about uh, having a failure or a setback and then giving up? Um, yes. Um, so really, um, like the change curve is kind of like this big dip. And it's when you start something off, you're full of optimism. And then you find... Like it's just going to go straight down 
because you're, you're going to hit all the challenges and it's going to go right down to the dip, um, which is the lowest point. And that's where most people are going to give up. But then once you've get, got through that and you've got through all the disheartened and all the feelings of um, doubt and anxiety about it, then you're going to rise up. And eventually you're going to reach the point where you, you figure it all out. So anything significant is always going to be harder than you think. There's going to be more challenges. It's going to be psychologically harder. Um, and uh, Jeff Diamond talks about the five stages of, of a relationship. And he talks about most couples give up in, in stage three because that's the dip. That's the bit where, it, where, like, initially you have this excitement and you have this honeymoon stage, um, and then you have, like, it's a little bit less exciting, um, and then you have the drudgery of, the, the like, getting to know each other and, and the differences, and the, the thing that you used to think was so endearing now becomes annoying. You have the differences in money and sex and ch raising children and social um, socialising and that. Um, and so you have all your biggest problems there at the bottom. And what he says is the couples that really work through that are the couples that have that like deep companionate love where you see them when they're 80 and they're still holding hands and still loving each other because they've got through that. Um, whereas most people typically get to that dip and they say, oh, this is too hard work, I, I can't see it. And it's because... They took score too early. And it's not to say you should suffer in something that you don't enjoy, but it's knowing if and, – and if we talk about relationships, because it's sort of what we're gathered around for, most people do that in dating. It gets hard and they go, oh, this is, um, this is too hard. It doesn't work. And so they give up and we've given up on online dating. Um, and they give up um, – in lots of ways that before they really worked out and it's and it's like if, we, if we're going to look at something like relationships i think we when we talked about mastery and there's only a few things you can master but things that are perpetually in your life things like <clears throat> health relationships your career money i think these are things that you have to master because they're otherwise they're going to be a constant source of problems um, and so the question is, in a relationship, is this, am I taking score too early or is this a relationship that has no better future? Um, so when you think of the things that are, so the things that you're really passionate about shouldn't really matter. And, and like Alex has said, I think it is, we should take things for enjoyment. If we're doing them for enjoyment, that's, that's why we're doing them. But often we put, we, particularly I think in the Western world, there's so much pressure on this has to be productive, this has to be effective, this has to be efficient. Um, and if it isn't, then we give up. And sometimes it's just do something because we feel good. You know, in my example, I could have played football and enjoyed football, but I gave up because I didn't think I was good enough anymore. Um, and where are you taking score too early? Where are you giving up? 
But I think once again, though, um, the external um, the externality of having um, people's opinions influencing how you feel and your subsequent um, decisions. I think that's something that we all need to uh, look at and understand and understand the role that it is playing in, in what's happening to us. Uh, because in many instances, the decisions that we make, it's a combination of personal feeling and those around us, um, the opinions of those around us. And also, even when you talk about I'm not being good enough, not being good enough for who? It's the perception of the others and their opinion that is governing why you think you're not good enough. And so you change your behavior or you don't do that particular thing um, because you think that either you're going to be laughed at or you're going to be near to the back of the pack. You never get chosen. And so you deprive yourself because of what others think and do. So I'm thinking that at the bottom of all of that is that we need to develop um, a sense of self built on resilience, a, 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 a level of resilience that enables us to make those decisions without feeling crushed um, by external opinions. Um, and so the decision is our decision based on our circumstances and based on what it is that we are deciding is the best for us. Because we don't have to be number one. We don't have to be the best. But if it gives us the best um, pleasure, then there's nothing wrong in shooting for having that thing in your life. I mean, it's, it's perfect for you. It may not be for anybody else. I suppose it's also akin to having people around you who will always tell you, no, don't do that. It's not good for you, but they're doing it themselves. Yeah, I think that's very true. Um, Nicole, it, well, the question was, um, I can't remember. The question was, um, where has... Um, like the need to prove yourself, so it was to a parent. And then the, the follow-up question was, where are we taking score too early? So we're judging on our results now as opposed to enjoyment, as opposed to um, the longer term. Um, so, yeah, I think that's very true. I think it is about our personal, um, I think, someone else's opinion we take their opinion but the in between their opinion and us taking it is our story and i and you know we had um i can't remember how which ones we've done but in relationship with heaven and relationship with hell we talked about the different above the line i think maybe um in mastery is about when you're above the line you're strong and you do um like you're strong and you believe in yourself, but it's those moments of weakness when we're below the line where we don't trust ourselves. So, and part of that, I think, comes from, you know, when you talked about um, humiliation and giving up, 
um, part of that is about a need to be special. Is that we, we, we there is something um, where we all want to feel that we're special and we want to, like on Facebook and Instagram, we want them to show how special we are um, and we're wanting someone to see. And I think that comes into relationships as well, is that what everyone's looking for is someone who sees them as that special person that their parents once did. But shouldn't that lead us to looking and examining those who really matter to us? What is our audience? Who are we trying to um, please, appease, get along with? Um, who really matters in our life? And what if your parents never saw you as special? Uh, exactly. Uh, is that Does that define you? Because there are others who will find you special. So, okay, just to that point, if they didn't find you special right from the very beginning, did they find you special? I, I suppose there are some parents that don't even when you're first born. Um, yeah, so I think, so there's probably something innate, isn't there, where you have that need to to have that love and attention. Yeah, that would be a survival thing because obviously the newborn baby can't survive without the attention. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I think I, I think for someone who has never felt that, um, they're starting at a disadvantage um, because they're always going to have. I think there's there's certain needs that we all have, and what that means is is you're starting. It's like life is going to be harder. And for some people, that, so when you look at the most successful people, there's usually, um, there's usually a lack of balance. You know, when you look at someone like, I, I, I don't know Steve Jobs is, um, Early, I have read his book, but I can't remember his early life. But when you look at how driven someone like that is, um, and it's usually driven from someone who needs to prove something mm. to someone. Um, it's usually someone who feels more fear than someone else. I think people who are really ba well balanced um, some sometimes are less ambitious. Because yeah, I think I can relate to that. As in some of that ambition comes from an unhealthy source. I think perfection. What was the point about being special, though? You're saying that when we're born as a baby, we want we, we should feel special to our parents, and then we grow up and we look for somebody that likewise treats us as though we're special. And then how does that tie in if you had parents that didn't think you were special? Okay. Um, so um, so what I was saying was sometimes we give up because um, this myth of being special is what drives us. And so if we fail, if we're rejected, it hurts our desire to be seen as special. Um, and because of that, we give up. 
so we give up on things because there's this like if, if we if we could just do right i'm doing this because of i want to enjoy it i'm doing this because i want to do it and i don't care what other people think life would be so much easier but i think we, we have that fear of humiliation fear of failure fear of rejection and most of that is about what we're worried about what other people are going to think of us and that fear comes from the need to be special and sometimes um like the wanting to be special like donald trump if you look at donald trump like that whole debacle was because he couldn't countenance the possibility that he wasn't special like everything i'm i'm a supremely special man i'm i'm just wonderful at this i'm i build the biggest hotels all of these things because he needs like he to not even acknowledge that he lost because he couldn't accept that he wasn't special but that all is someone that to please his father yeah is he someone that hasn't been loved by by his parents no. he hasn't felt loved and special by his parents so he's overcompensating his father never showed love his father his father was a bully his father and he tried his entire life seems to have been based on trying to get the approval of his father so everything that he did was had to be the biggest the best and whatever and he learned from his father he's it's a classic case of 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 hero worship in all its bad <laughs> with, with all its bad um, outcomes mm. I remember talking to someone once, and this was someone really successful. He was, uh, um, by most accounts, um, he was <clears throat> managing director, chairman, and he he was of lots of big companies. And his, so when I met him, he was older. He was sort of retired, but he would just come out in and work at a company for when I had a problem, um, and he was coming to grips with he'd been successful all his life uh, and he was saying like what for he said i i've always been driven to prove to my dad my dad always said to me do the best you can like do your best he's, he's like have i done my best he said because that, that was never the that was never achievable because however good you've got there's always a, a sense of wanting to do more um And I'm also like something else that comes to mind is is if you know football, Roy Keane. Now Roy Keane is like the most driven, competitive person, and I remember reading an interview with him, um, and his is all driven on fear. He was someone who who didn't make it until late. He was only discovered, like he he, he looked like he wasn't going to be a footballer, a professional footballer. Um, he got a chance. It was a, a, a random chance. Um, and he was so frightened that he didn't really belong, which caused this aggressiveness, um, which drove him. Um, so, yeah, so, so I think we can all have different stories, you know, whether we haven't been loved, whether we've been shown this evidence. Um, so it can be hard to trust ourselves, but ultimately it's about, are we making our own story? 
because if we're not making our own story, we, we're going to be off course in whichever direction because we're going to be living for someone else or we're going to be trying to achieve something for someone else's reasons. But isn't it also about disconnecting almost like the umbilical cord in a sense from the story that is the story of your parents and whoever it is, um, having the ability to <coughs> separate oneself to some extent from 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 that from that past story. In, in yeah. other words, you have you have to have you have to have a um, some some amount of separation that will enable you to even strike out and be brave enough to 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 to, um, to do other things or to try other things or to um, even get the energy. But also, I think to enable you to look dispassionately on the situation, you have to remove yourself from those influences as well mm. and for some people that's that's hard because of their physical circumstances in some it, it's hard if you're if these people are in the same town as you <laughs> or you know pretty close by and you're wrapped up in in in, in, in their lives as well mm. Mm. um there's there's a question um i'd like to ask you um, to everyone in regards to that is when is the point when you stop being a child and you stop being an adult in your own eyes and in everyone else's eyes? I think when you're living to please yourself and you're, you're, you're making your decisions based on what you want for your life rather than what you believe you're parents or other people want so when you become autonomous but but also but what i mean is also when the other people see you in that way mm. yeah. um my sense on it would be it's, it's the point at which you it's the point at which you stop um you stop trying to have all the answers worked out, I think. Um, because, you know, for me, I think when I was, when I was a, a, a child and a young adolescent looking up and, you know, and I, I kind of saw who I thought, you know, kind of were, were adults who had all the, had everything worked out and, you know, and, and kind of knew everything. And, and what I didn't, what I was actually seeing was just kind of the, the confidence of, of somebody who who accepts that they don't have all the answers and doesn't need to have all the answers, um, and so it was kind of counterintuitive for me because I think I spent a long time, you know, trying to trying to make sense of everything in my own head, um, and feeling like I had to have everything worked out. And and the point at which you accept that I haven't got everything worked out, I'm never going to have everything worked out, and you you know <laughs> you're no wiser than you were the previous day, but you you kind of you find a peace at that point, I think, and and that changes that changes your outlook to other people. Hmm. I, I I think a lot of people have have never reached that. You know, when you look at um, like the popularity of a lot of like things on YouTube and Facebook are because people want someone to look up to. 
they want to say like this is this person has all the answers um but yeah I, I definitely i definitely think that is i think that's the point of maturity i just think the problem is a lot of people don't reach it um and you're obviously like i would say you're you're quite young to have reached that um <laughs> because i i think most people um i think i think i was um older than you when i sort of let go of needing to to feel like I had the answers, um, or, or to like show. Um, so, the, the, what triggered me to ask that question was um, Joseph Campbell talked about one of the crises of our society, our culture, is that we don't have rites of passage. So, all of the more ancient tribes, they would have like thirteen uh, boy would be set off to go and hunt and they have to kill a lion or they have to go and like Spartans had to go and kill as many slaves as they could and um uh all of these or like there is like he's uh, Joseph Campbell talks about like where the tribe where they, they grabbed they grabbed from the women and they're taken off and the men have all got masks and they terrify them and they scar them or they um whatever um, but the point of it is that there's a point where the the ordeal makes the boy a man, and I say boy because it typically was boy, although there are some for, for girls as well. Um, but it makes the boy a man, and then when they go back, often they've got something that signifies to everyone that they're an adult. And so in those cultures, people know. Whereas here in our culture like when do you treat someone sometimes for some people it'll be when they're 18 some people it'll be then 21 and like for some parents is never and because we we don't have that separation but when uh, you ask how do other people know that we we are an adult how um how is that supposed to be indicated well, well th th this is this is what um joseph campbell's saying that we don't have a clear clear point where we know so um like if you're in a tribal society, um, you're a boy with with like with women until you go through this ordeal, and when you come back, you're a man. Like if you're um, so, yeah, I understand that. So I mean, in modern society, how would we interpret or, or perceive that somebody is an adult? It's just based on our perception, and it might be completely flawed. In other words, they might be over eighteen or twenty five, but they might still be mentally emotionally immature yeah exactly that that was his point his point was that we never knew that we grown up and other people never know they don't have the cue to know so people some will treat you as an adult at 18 some will treat you as an adult when you're 35 um but the, that lack of clarity um makes it harder for us because there's no clear separation or it's assumed that if that you're married, so you must be mature, or you're a parent, so you you must be an adult, you know, um, which are false concepts, you know, about themselves. So I think for me, go on, sorry, Nicole. I was just going to say, letting go of trying to please other people and care um, for their perspective on my life or my way of being 
and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I think that, um, yeah, I think that's, if I, if I see that in other people, to me, I feel like they've introspected and they've, they're autonomous and they've reached, you know, a level of maturity, I guess, when they're just doing to please themselves as such, not in a selfish way, but... Mm. So, okay, so general question. How many people do you know like that that genuinely, like, aren't worried about people's opinions? Who do things for their own reasons? Very few. few. (laughs) I mean, when you look at, like, Facebook and Instagram are are basically driven on that need to prove to people. um, um, I have no social media. What does that mean about me, then? (laughs) Yeah, me neither. I gave up (laughs) that a long time ago because I don't see the point. So what does that say about me? I'm a (laughs) (laughs) grown-up. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think I think we're in a stage where um, you know, like you had smoking, bad for you. Um, uh, fat, smoking, fat, sugar, um, lack of exercise. I think the next one drinking. of the next big things is going to be drinking. like social media. Don't forget drinking. Yeah. Mm. Well, I mean, drinking is is a huge problem, and much of it is about um, people drink to feel comfortable mm. because they're not comfortable themselves, and they they need that sort of Dutch courage to mm. talk to people. But, but that's what I call a crutch. Cigarettes yeah. were also used for that too to give you a sense of. It was something to hold on to. Now, now instead of cigarettes, you hold on to your smartphone. Yeah, it's something to do with your hands. It's uh, it makes you look sophisticated. It does all of those things. So again, it's perception. <laughs> oh yeah, the, the drink or whatever it is, the ex- the exotic man with the whatever you know, blah blah blah. Now it's the smartphone. You know the drinking thing uh, that relates to what you were saying about people wanting validation from other people because when you say people aren't comfortable to be themselves so they drink the reason they're drinking is so that it softens the blow of possible rejection Mm, so again that ties into not feeling good enough and feeling that they need to seek validation oh dear i have a big problem then because i can't drink Bad. <laughs> I get the feeling you don't need validation from anyone, Sandra. Oh, <laughs> I don't care. I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> That's the way. Yeah, 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 yeah. I can have a good time. No drink. I don't need to be drunk to do anything. I'm on your team. I'm on your team, definitely. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> One glass of wine, I'll be going to bed. <laughs> I can't drink. I physically cannot drink. I, I cannot. I'm alert. I used to be able to, but I can't. From I was 21, um, I had a glass of wine and I started to get what felt like electric currents running from my chest mm. up into my, through my neck. And each time it's like, a, like I'm getting an electric shock. Mm. Mm. And I, the doctors just can't give me a, 
and at an explanation, but it feels as though it's running again along my nervous system, going up into my head. So I've been told maybe it could give me a heart attack or something. So don't, we don't know what is going on. So just leave it alone. Don't, don't risk it then, yeah. No, I, no, I don't need to. I don't need to. I'm noisy enough and I make I carry on enough. I don't need alcohol, believe you me. I'm not the only one. What was that? I'm not the only one. <laughs> oh. Have fun with us, I'll be the clown, I'll put the firework. <laughs> Come to the Caribbean and you'll see what we are all about. It's just noise. You don't have to drink. Just have a good time. <laughs> You're so all that's in interesting. The Caribbean to see how crazy you can get. <laughs> so that's interesting, Sandra. Would you say like there there must be a different cultural story? In terms of what? In terms of um, in the Caribbean being able to relax and enjoy themselves more. Yeah. Um, well, I, th I think there are two things that, uh, well, a number of things that go together. And one is um, the having to make your own entertainment, but also trying to maintain um, family links. So the whole notion of um, people being very casual uh, about meeting and that meeting um, is usually quite fun. You know, there is food, people will visit people without an appointment, uh, if you know what I mean, <laughs> if you are close friends. And um, you'll have games, you'll have music, you, you don't necessarily have to have alcohol, it's telling jokes, family stories, whatever it is, you have a good time. Um, you are you in the Caribbean? Have, have a five-a-side football match, you know, just among the fellows or cricket thing going on. The women will be doing all sorts of things. And we have lots of parties. Are you in the Caribbean? If I, I'm in the Caribbean? Yeah. No, I'm in here in the UK. Oh. <laughs> I'm in Lewis, <laughs> down south now. But... but um. As a result of that, I think also uh, a lot of people lived in small communities mm -hmm. in the old days. So you would know everybody, um, even though people were quite mobile and would move around a lot for work, um, etc. But as a result of that, um, lots of lots of things would happen and it happens here because we got a lot of what the, what we do from here as well in terms of you know the sunday afternoon cricket match on the green we would have that but then we would have food and it, music would come out and you would have a party and the party was of such that you nobody was watching you so you didn't get self-conscious i think that was a difference so you you dance Nobody's watching you. So you all dance together. You have a good time. You know, you dance by yourself. Nobody cares. Um, can you dance? No, nobody cares. You're just having a good time. So in, in terms of schools, is there like where schools can be very, I'm thinking like mean girls, that type of thing, um, sort of where there's lots of bitchy comments and... Uh, 
um, put downs was is. is there is that different in the Caribbean? Um, you have bullying um, wherever you go. Okay, there's always a mean set of girls. Uh, but at my school, for example, you had groups of friends, but you didn't have the bullying that I I saw here when my son was at school. It was strange to me because that kind of bullying I found was actually um, qu quite cruel in some instances. For example, uh, at my school, when I was very young, I was different in many respects. But because of how um, the village was set up, they didn't trouble me. They, they couldn't bother me because my family employed a lot of their parents or brothers and sisters. So they would call me names. And because I am evidently mixed race, I would like, if they really wanted to um, upset me, they would call me things like, tell me that I'm corrupted. Um, so it's name calling. Mm -hmm. In other words, I'm a mixed up, mixed up person. So I'm not one of them kind of thing. And, and that's to make you feel bad. But um, I didn't feel bad because I'm who I am. Uh, so you get that kind of of, of bullying, and um, they laugh at they laugh at you if you're different. But nobody will beat you up. Nobody was going to be, um, you know, gang up on you around the corner and hit you to the ground, and you know all of the things that I hear and see that them they're, they're doing with children here, and especially girl gangs. No. No. They'll tease you. They'll tease you if you have on something that's not fashionable. You, you know, that's what used to happen to us. That's mild in comparison to now. Mm. Or they laugh at you and say you have to go to church and you can't go to a party. <laughs> that kind of thing. Which is which is nothing, you know. Okay, so that's interesting. Um, all right, so general question. In terms of the hill that you're going to die on, in terms of the passion like for things that really matter to you, are you clear on what that is, what those few things are? Yes. Mm. I have one thing. I must I don't I don't wish to have any regrets about not achieving the things that I really aspire to get done. When I'm when I'm expiring, I must have no regrets. Hmm. I love the word expiry. <laughs> Sorry. I love the word expiry. <laughs> Sorry, um, Best before. Um, yeah. So, yeah, does every, like I, I think that I, this, I don't want to have any regrets. Is, is that a universal thing? Does everyone think that? Yeah. Yeah. 
And is there anything particularly that you think about? I mean, regret is relationships that um, acrimonious relationships that I'd like to, if 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 I can think of any that I'd like resolved. Mm -hmm. And in, I'm talking important relation, uh, uh, yeah. yeah, important relationships to have it resolved. Mm -hmm. I suppose. Um, I suppose uh, a. Uh, a corollary of um, of not wanting to to die with any regrets is 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 kind of another way of saying you you don't you don't want to feel you don't want to feel like there have been opportunities that you you should have taken that you didn't, um, which I suppose is kind of where you where you started us on uh, an hour or so back, Rob. Um, and you know, I think for me that that would come down to you know if I ever felt like if I ever felt like I put my, my day job before my passion, um, which I think Nicole, we got kind of halfway to talking about in our breakout room at one point, but, um, you know, I, I kind of have a, uh, I have a kind of very organized separation of, you know, my day job is, is, you know, doing what I do to pay the bills. And then, you know, at, at weekends and at night, I, I go out and play music and, and for the most part, those two are completely compatible. So, you know, it kind of works, it works in harmony at present for, uh, pun slightly intended um and uh but yeah i mean you know there there might come a point in in the coming months and years where you know maybe there's an opportunity to do something to go on tour and and you know i think i kind of made the decision that if that day if and when that day comes you know i i will look to take a sabbatical from you know from work to to actually do that um so yeah, I think it's kind of recognizing opportunities like that and situations like that, and you know that you're going to do the the thing that you're going to going to feel the passion for, and that and that actually actually matters. Um, so, so we might be hearing you on Spotify soon. Uh, I'm on there already, actually, but only as, only as part of something else. Um, yeah, no, no, it's 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 pretty small time, but. Um, but yeah, um, no, I, I just, I, I mean, once again, you know, it's, it's, I, I was brought up kind of, I very nearly gave up playing music because I didn't enjoy the competitive atmosphere that I was in. And I, I still vividly remember to this day, um, being taken off to music festivals to play and absolutely hating it. Um, I would be, I'd be physically sick. I wouldn't sleep. Um, yeah, God, I was only 11 or 12 at the time. Um, you know, I just didn't kind of, I, I didn't know to kind of, um, you know, to find my own enjoyment in it really. And I remember my dad in the car on the way back from one of these things turning to me and saying, you really enjoy this, don't you? And I was like, <laughs> and I remember sort of thinking at the time, is is this what this is? Is this is this enjoyment? Like, is this, is this what it means to enjoy doing something? Um, and then the first time that I, the first time that I played with um, with jazz musicians, uh, just at a at a jam session, and there was there was no competition, there was no there was no prize, there were no judges. It was just you are here to you're here to present your own music and and enjoy it, and or, or, or maybe not, maybe just to enjoy what other people have brought. And 
um, you know, and take, you know, take something from that. And, and yeah, that's, that's all I look for, for from the music. I'm not looking to be, to be famous. I'm not looking to, to make a career of it even necessarily. I just want to, every time I get up on stage in front of whoever, like big audience, small audience, whatever, I just want to enjoy playing the music with the people that I'm there with. What do you play? Uh, piano mostly, um, but I have I have been singing in recent years as well, which uh, again is <laughs> is very much a um, a kind of amateur pursuit, but I love it. It's it's so much fun. Is it jazz? Uh, jazz, pop, classical. Um, yeah, I'm <laughs> I'm trying I to like drop jazz. On. How much jazz? Um, yeah, I like fair. jazz. I'd oh, like you do like jazz? Is it on um, Spotify? Uh, I am somewhere. Um, I, I try not to turn this into a plug. <laughs> oh, tell us, tell us. Um, <laughs> um, we've all got a Spotify open now. Down for the count is the uh, is the group that that's really I'm on. I'm on Spotify with. Um, oh, I'm going to look you up. <laughs> um, there you are. I'm hugely lucky actually because they've they've kept me sane during lockdown as well. We've been doing um, uh, kind of charity lockdown videos, and I know everybody's seen them all now and probably sick to death of them. Yeah, but, the uh, New Year's as well, the New Year's concert. Yeah, it's really good. Well, let us know if you play live somewhere. We'll come and see you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, so I shall. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's actually a big. Now that you have brought up music, that is actually a big regret in my life. Right. My teacher, my music teacher. I was a wayward music student, but nonetheless, I went to grade four theory, and I was about to do my exam, and my music teacher looked at me and said, "This is most unusual." You are excellent at theory, but you're no good at practical. So you should not, because I wouldn't practice. So you should not sit the theory exam. And I was, I was excellent at the theory, and she banned me. <laughs> she banned me because I would not practice to do my practical exam. And I regret it. What instrument do you do, Sandra? Oh, no, no, no. Do? I was learning the piano. When I was much small, I was learning the organ and I was quite good at it. But once again, when negative people get at you, if you're not strong enough, you will say, I am no good at this and I will stop. I started learning it like three months ago, four months ago. I have a keyboard here. My son's keyboard is here. I mean, I can, you know. Yeah. I can it's never too it. late. It's That's one of the things that are like, no, I want to do it, so I'm doing it. <laughs> Won't become a professional, but I enjoy it. So. But my music teacher had a ruler. And I was not having it. So I just refused to practice. And But my theory, I was brilliant at it. And she... She just said, no, I will not allow you. I think people who do that do no. humanity a disservice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> totally agree. Well, I, I had in, in music, um, like the first lesson of high school, you have, uh, you played a recorder. <laughs> um, <laughs> I did play that. <laughs> I did that. 
Um, and the the music teacher said, he said, you, you, you're not really cut out for performance. So for the rest of like the next two years of my music, I was sat in a corner copying out notes about composers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, no. yeah. Yeah, that'll make you hate it if nothing else does. <laughs> yeah, well, to be honest, I, I actually preferred that than actually playing the. Like, I had no performing. Like, my art teacher told me my art was the worst he'd seen in 20 years of teaching. <laughs> really? Well, it's quite an achievement, actually, in a strange kind of way. <laughs> yeah. I was probably the, the least creative, artistic person that's ever been through that school. <laughs> oh, no. But that's another disappointment. My choice was art or chemistry. I was good at both, so you know which one won out. I gave up the art for the chemistry. It's not good. <laughs> no, it's this. It's terrible. Mm. But I've got my paintbrushes back. I'm, I'm going to start again, paint and paint. So I'm and canvas. So I'm going to I'm going to do stuff. That image behind you. Yeah, yeah. I can paint Strawberry Hill. <laughs> yeah. I think on my hill I'll be dancing. I want to make more connections. A bit more expression and freedom. That's what I'm aiming for. So, yeah, you guys bring the music. <laughs> Sounds like a deal. <laughs> yep. Alex can bring the music. We'll go to uh, Sandra's hill. Yeah, come to my hill right there. Yes. <laughs> where, where the party in. Yeah. <laughs> no one will object to that. <laughs> and some good, good, good Jamaican food. Mm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Okay, um, so one last question. Well, maybe two. So now, so that's the big picture of like what's your life about. Now, in terms of relationships, when you think about the fights that you've had that were meaningless, and then the fights that you've had or maybe didn't have that you should have had, can you see like, so where is the line between something that's worth fighting about and something that you're only fighting about for a silly reason that's destructive. So this construct, and so this really pays into compromise. So um, compromise is negotiation when it's about something that doesn't really matter. When it's about fundamentally changing who you are, it's it's about um, losing something. What so, about if you should have a fight and you don't? Yeah, that's what I said. So it, what are the things that you should fight for but maybe haven't? And then the things that you have... So Howard Markman talks about really most fights are about three things within a relationship. Uh, care and closeness of not feeling cared for, not feeling close enough, respect and recognition because you don't feel that you're getting the respect and the recognition that you want, or power and control. And he says that basically all arguments, you know, like about the toothbrush, about the clothes on the floor, are really about those things. Um, so often people squabble and they have no idea what they're squabbling about, but really it's about 
something that they're standing up for, but they're just picking a, the, the, an argument. And so that argument can't be resolved because they're not really fighting about what they're really fighting about. Mm-hmm. Or they're not really clear about what they're fighting about. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So it's really, you. we have to know what is key to us to fight about. And that's really what, Ultimately, if you can have communication, it's what actually becomes constructive because it becomes knowing the deeper layers of the onion um, and strengthens the relationship. And then what isn't worth fighting about um, because it really doesn't matter. I remember to put these two into words. Like, um, I'm thinking about something within a relationship, a best relationship, that is just... And in the beginning, I could communicate very well what was not working and what I needed. And then it kind of muddled up. And I kind of just found myself having fights that were not leading anywhere. So that's when I think that I should have drawn the line and, okay, this is not worth fighting for anymore. Because in the beginning, when the communication was still open and it was still sort of working, but... In the end, it didn't really work because the person was not listening and nothing was happening after that. It would be just like that adjustment for a week and then it gets back to the same or worse. So I think then after, it's just not, not worth the fight anymore and I carried on. So don't know if that makes sense. I don't know if I got yeah, it does. Point straight away, but yeah. So when you carried on with the fight, was it that you were really trying to get their attention to try and get to the real issue? Yeah. But without actually saying it? I think I did say, but then it just goes on a tangent and it just starts, becomes a snowball, which everything just gets involved because I think that the four points you mentioned were lacking and then it becomes a thing of power and control. Like I need to take control of this. I need and it, it is impossible. Yeah. But what if you're fighting for something that you think you're supposed to be fighting for without actually thinking it through? And it may be that you're conditioned to think that you should fight for this particular thing rather Mm -hmm. than you actually really wanting to fight for this thing. Yeah. Well, that's what we were talking. Was it last week we did the thing? No, the week before the Think Free Rebellion which is really the only thing that matters is not dogma, what you've been told. It's not ignorance, what, you don't, what you're not aware of, or emotion. It's about what, what's the thing that really matters. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's where those things get you off course because someone's told you that you should have this. Um, then you end up fighting about this, but it's not really your fight because it's not really, it's not going to, it's not really, that's the, idea of fighting for a hill that you don't want to you don't care about dying on um and it's so you only fight about what's essential i think in the end those fights that wasn't that weren't worth it in the end they ended up being worth it because i learned from it so now i pick my fights better i think (laughs) so that's okay i ended up winning in the end but yeah yeah that's yeah, I mean, and yeah, then sometimes you need a relationship like that so you're clearer. Mm. Um, and 
yeah, so that we we can learn from. But yeah, it's it's what is the hill um, and what's not the hill, um, and what's not the hill doesn't matter, um, and what's on the hill does. But if you are caught up in the moment, you're caught up with all the other things in life um, where you don't you can't you don't have the luxury of stopping to analyze and being aware of what is important versus what is not really important. In other words, you're just going with the flow. You can pick the wrong fights. Yeah, because because you're not clear, because you, you haven't, like, identified what is the hill, you know, I, I really care about. And but that can also break break um, a relationship. So, in other words, the relationship could be broken for the wrong reasons. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, probably sixty to eighty percent of couples really could stay together, but it's just lack of lack of awareness um, because there's there's a lack of clarity of what they're really fighting about. So, I mean, so, um, I work sometimes as a mediator um, between two people, two groups that are fighting. And really all it is is getting back to um, – so there's their story of what they're – like what they want. There's what they'll accept. And the it's just – like what? What do you really need? Um, and it's just getting clear on the story. Like the story, we fight because of the story in our head. And if that story, so whenever we feel bad, it's and we can't change the circumstance. The only other thing we can change is our story about the circumstance. So that's a sign. So. Um, you know, like we did the emotion versus logic. Emotion is tells you how things are going. Logic tells you how, what to do. Um, and, yeah, it's just mixing those up. But isn't a fundamental issue that we all could probably learn to do better um, and one that results in many of these conflicts is that we really need to learn how to listen to ourselves as well as to, the ourse other to ourselves and to and, and to, the, yeah. uh, to the other party because in many instances we hear what we want to hear and not what is actually being said hmm. and we react to what we think we we heard. Is it a so, mixture of honesty as well? Because yeah. when you say people don't know what they're arguing about, uh, is it because they're not honest in the first place? So when uh, they suppress everything, then it becomes. Uh, an issue where something superficial blows up in their face, but they're not being honest about what really matters because yeah, of fear, perhaps not saying what they really think or feel. Yeah, I think they, um, again, <coughs> because we worry what people um, think of us um, and because we're not honest to ourselves. So we don't always know what we we just react. Um, and to, to go back so, so yeah, I definitely think it's it's, it's a lack of honesty of not knowing, lack of honesty to the be, other person. 
How can, we, we, how can we be more honest with ourselves that just start with acknowledging how we really feel and having the courage to, to own how we feel rather than try to be what we think the other people might want for validation? Well, um, yes, but I, I think the real issue is that we, we've got, like our conditioning of our society is that more is better. Um, and so, and this is perpetuated by the media because it's that's what powers the economic, like whole economic engine. And so we, the more money we make, the richer we become as an economy, the busier we, we become. The people in the 60s and the 70s were talking about we would only have to work 10 hours and what would people do with all the leisure. But when you look at people's work weeks now, we're doing more than our parents did. We, like, the jobs have been merged so that one person is doing what free people used to do. Um, and economically, like our output per hour is so much more, and yet no one feels that much richer. So when you look at the, the standard, our standard of living, our standard of living is, is completely like when you take 1900 and now we're completely um, out of line. Like the early 20th century, people were, um, people were like their, their survival wasn't certain. If they didn't, if there were people who still didn't make it, who, who couldn't survive because they didn't have enough money. So the reason why I'm saying that is the point to that is, that there's this driven thing of being more effective, more efficient, um, doing more, achieving more. Um, and so that's like a economic treadmill. And because of that, no one has the time to stop and think about what they're really doing because the people mindlessly um, run for more and more instead of stopping and thinking about what is it they really want? Most people's problems are because they don't stop to analyze. Um, yeah, hunter-gatherers, hunter like, were, um, we think that, you know, they must have been just hunting all the time, but they actually didn't hunt very often. Uh, they, they had much more leisure time than we do. And if you look, um, the le our leisure time has gone less and less the richer we've got. And they um, seemed more connected, didn't they, as well, I think? Yeah. Natural, yeah, because they lived in, in small tribes and mm. um, actually had a lot more uh, equality um, because men and women had um, – so the man would provide the meat, but that would only be every couple of days or every three or four days, whereas the woman would, would gather the stuff pretty much every day. So their um, societies had more equality, like the whole patriarchy – came about from agriculture because it was like you needed the, the man to have the plough, you couldn't separate, and so that's where it, it became. Um, so does that make sense, Betty? From, um, and so where were we? Um, Sandra, uh, there was something... Um, Sorry, can you just remind me of what you were 
what you were saying before, because there was a point I wanted to... Oh, I've forgotten. <laughs> yeah. Um, what was it about? Was it... Well, what, what did you just honest. mention about emotion and logic? You say emotion tells you what's going on and logic tells you what to do. Yeah, so... so um, the reason we get into relationships is for emotional reasons, for how we feel. How we can tell how a relationship is going is from our emotions. Um, the problem people have is when they make decisions on how to get to how to get somewhere from based on emotion. So they pick someone because they're really attractive. They pick. Um, they decide they decide to believe someone because like because they, like, you know like this is the whole thing of someone being in an abusive relationship and saying, but yeah but I love them um or I can't do that because you know I feel this way do you know what I mean like people do things for emotional reasons that make no sense um and so we have to separate um so emotion is about how we feel, why we do it. But then the reality of the situation, um, logic is the way that we mediate between how we feel and what we want and the reality of the situation. And so if we don't work logically in that, we make decisions because we want them to be true rather than they actually are true. So we don't take reality into consideration. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. It's just I'm trying to uh, get the distinction between, I suppose, where one seeks guidance in terms of is it emotional or logic because uh, uh, emotions or feelings... Okay, so you're saying we don't base our decisions based on feelings, but yet those feelings are telling us how we, how we feel about the situation? Yes. So, right, if you're unhappy then there's a there's a mismatch between what you want and the reality. So that's where you need logic. So like the contrary, if you um, try to analyse a relationship with logic in terms of why you like it, why you should be in a relationship, the people will often make lists in... Um, like like who they're going to pick from or whatever, um, and that is when you, when you try and when you try and judge a relationship by logic, you just end up overthinking and overanalyzing because the whole purpose of it is to feel. But the, the purpose of a relationship is to feel, to make you feel a feeling. If you're not if you're not feeling that, then there's a problem with logic because there's a, a mismatch between what you want and how you're navigating. So life is really like this path to, to be navigated because life has everything. It's just if we can navigate to it. Now, if we... So let me use the example of a GPS. If a GPS took the route because it was a prettier road you'd end up somewhere different. If it decided how to map the route based on 
what the best scenery was, you might not get to your destination. So you want a GPS to be logical. Like this is the layout. This is where the road goes. This is where there's a roadblock. This is where like traffic is. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. So we have to be logical, but at the same time, you're saying the thing that drives us in a relationship is the desire for the feeling. Yeah. So the only time we need logic is to mediate between when we're not feeling something. But the, so, the person, okay. but Rob, the person who may bring out the most intense feeling in you may be the worst person for you. Exactly. Um, and that's why you, that's why like so many people will get swayed by this person because of the last, um, because of all these reasons. And they make terrible decisions because what they've done is they've taken that the goal to be with this person. So whereas if they were logical, they'd realise the goal isn't that person. The goal is how they want to feel in the relationship. So the relationship that they want is more important than who it's with. So um, that's where you have to navigate with logic. So if you if you navigate with emotion, you're just going to chase the hottest guy, the richest girl. Um, and that's why people stay in relationships too long. Because... So when you see Beauty and the Beast, don't question it because that could be the best relationship going. <laughs> I love that movie. <laughs> but what you're saying, Rob, is that the goal is the feeling and not the actual individual in the relationship. So if that individual isn't right, then you move on to someone who it does feel right. And it's that logical decision that you will make to move on to get the right yeah, feeling. But, but, but what, what you're doing is you're not just moving on because I don't feel that. Um, it's the logic of, I guess, so like what, what do I want to feel? Does this person have the qualities and the capability to make me feel like that? So you're not just saying, oh, I'm not feeling good. Because another thing that people do is they feel bad for whatever reason, maybe they're going through a rough time. And because they feel bad, what we, we this is like us being busy, us rushing, not really thinking things through. We may feel bad for reasons that got nothing to do with our partner, but we then blame our partner for how we feel. And so people will leave a relationship because they feel bad. Because when you feel bad, you want to change something. Like people will buy more when they feel bad. People will change relationships. People will get into relationships to try and change their state. But it's really something they can only change them, themselves. So um, it's knowing why you feel bad. And that's where the logic comes in. So it's not just blindly changing one person for another, but why? Like what is wrong? So the, the logic mediates what's really going on um, and is this the best route? Yeah, that makes sense. Thanks. And and there was another point I was gonna gonna make with that, and I still can't remember what Sandra triggered. But it'll come. Yeah. Another night. 
Okay. Um, has anyone else got any questions, comments? But, but Rob, um, this logic, this issue of logic, um, puts a level of responsibility on oneself to um, be to do that, but one has to have certain tools to be able to think logically. Um, not just logically, but um, to be able to analyze the particular issue. If you have um, no idea what benchmarks you're supposed to use or you should be using to make that assessment, how do you go about that? Okay. Um, that's a good point because why so many relationships fail is because nobody has that. Um, and individually, and as a relationship, we're a closed system. So if you're if you're not getting any any other information, then you believe that you're right, but you you don't know what you don't know. Um, so um, I think you have to have information from outside, in whatever form, and it's a bit like air traffic control. So you need old like GPS. It's like you have to have a triangulation because you don't know where you are um, without that tri um, triangulation. So um, can you, oh, if you can remember, can you ask me that question again? Because I've gone off on that. And <laughs> if to exercise logic, yeah, you need to have certain tools. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, and if you are not equipped and you can't benchmark, how do you know that in exercising this logic you have arrived at any um, relevant conclusions? Because also the external forces who may provide you with some insight may be the wrong ones. And you okay. can't even make an assessment as to who's giving you good advice versus... Yeah. Okay, so, so let, let's think about that. Um, so I would so I believe it comes down to like brutal honesty with yourself, um, and it comes down to you being above the line. Does everyone does that make sense to everyone? Above the line, below the line, above the line is strong, below the line is weak. Um, so um, I and then I think it's it's really about the whole thinking free, like free of thinking your own thoughts. So it's knowing, knowing who you are, knowing what's important to you. Um, and then it's making the tough decisions. I'm going to play devil's advocate. How do you know who you are? When do you realize that you actually know who you are? And that you can base your decisions on really knowing who you are. Yeah. And what do you mean by tough decisions? Okay. Um, okay. So, so I've talked about, I, I think we have a blueprint. And for us to be happy means that we live by that blueprint. Um, and we get swayed off by what other people tell us, dogma. 
by ignorance and by emotions. So it really comes down to, so how do you know who you are? Um, I think that's something you can only feel. So you can sort of feel when something's right and when something's wrong. And if you give time and attention and energy to distinguishing um, and being really honest with yourself, you can identify what what is really you and what is a story that someone else has given you. But there are some people who are not comfortable with looking at themselves. Yeah. And that, and I know people like that. They cannot spend a, a, an evening alone. They actually don't like their own company. So to look at themselves, to spend time to even understand what they like as a person on to themselves. They don't stop. They are the life of the party. They are constantly on the go. They are being entertained all the time. So that introspection that you are speaking of could actually um, be something that they consciously avoid. And as a result of that, their relation, well, I must say those that I know, their relationships all fail um, at one point or another. And possibly that is the reason why. Mm. Um, yes, my, my, my personal opinion of people who are depressed is that deep down, they think they're a bad person. And because they think they're a bad person, they don't want to look and they don't want to challenge. Um, and so Carolyn Mace talks about woundology, that's why people don't heal is because they like the wound because the wound gives them something and that becomes the story that then means that they don't have to look at themselves. What was that name, please? Uh, Carolyn Mace, M-I-M-Y-S-S. So that's um, a bit of a martyrdom syndrome, in a sense. To, sometimes, and sometimes just because it's hard and it's scary to look at yourself. Most people won't. Um, and like you say, most you know, like those people who, who can't see it because of the demons in their head. Um, and so they will try everything else, um, but nothing will work. And so either they'll dry, you know, like turn to drugs or, or whatever and go down that way, or they'll constantly distract themselves um, until the pain gets more and more. So... Um, yeah, not everyone will. Um, and I think there are few people that are really willing to be that honest. So that's why most people live below the line. So it comes down to you being able to recognize that type of person and not getting hooked up with that kind of person. Yes, it's, yes, it's, yes, it's looking for that person that, and, and all none of us, we're very few, are above the line all the time. Most of us are down, up, up, down, up, down. But it's the ability, the wanting um, 
yeah, um, it's the wanting to to face that the one the desire to be above the line, the the desire, which ultimately comes down to integrity, because integrity is about do what you think, say, and do line up. If they don't, then you're two people. There's the person you're presenting, there's the person you're thinking you are, the person you're saying you are, and the person of what you're doing. Um, so it, that's why integrity is like the core building block. Um, so most people won't. Um, I don't, can everyone do it on their own? I don't, I don't know, but then there are um, people that people can go to, aren't there? I mean, that's why people like me, therapists, um, coaches, this, this whole like, industry of people that are exist. Um, I, and I, I think I think we all need whether it's whether you get it from books, whether you get it from um, priests, whether you get it from I don't know spiritual teachers or friends or whatever i think we all need something outside of us to tell us where we are because there's like that whole um pro prior perception of like knowing where you are in relation to everything we don't know that ourselves sometimes. what was that word you just used what perception um pro pro prior perception which is is basically physically knowing where you are in, like in, in relation to the walls, um, people who have poor pro prior perception, um, like will walk into walls and bump into things. Is it like that saying that they said you can't see yourself if you're in the picture frame? You need someone else to see yeah. you from the outside and yeah. then reflect it back. Yeah, I mean it's not necessary that you can't, um, but it just takes a high degree of honesty and a separation from yourself separation like from the ego of yourself but even with honesty it's still difficult to see the self because we have so many blind spots so i suppose yeah. it, the point is it's really useful to have somebody to give honest reflection or, or positive criticism yeah exactly that, that's why i'm saying about we're a closed system we need something outside of ourselves yeah. and in many respects sometimes we can be too hard on ourselves yeah, and which is which is the next one, like integrity, respect, and respect is a two-way thing, respect for yourself, respect for your partner, and respect is not really, like a lot of people demand respect in the sense of, if you talk to me like this, treat me like this, there's respect. <clears throat> respect <clears throat> is really about a curiosity of how you made up, how what makes you tick, how do you work, and for yourself and for, the, and for your partner. And then the third one is kindness to yourself and to a partner. And that's why that, those three, in my opinion, are the key to relationships because everything else builds from that. Well, I, 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 well as you mentioned earlier, um, if you uh, look at integrity and if you operate from a position of integrity, then most other things fall into place because the issue of respect, the issue of kindness, 
those all emanate from a place of integrity in, 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 in and when someone's out understand that then many of the issues that people focus on as being separate from everything else um they would see that they're all they're they're they all bound up within this whole concept of integrity it's just one thing so when for example with in my situation i talk about respect um um not 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 feeling respected in certain um circumstances it's all going back to the integrity issues of the person mm. yeah yeah because when someone doesn't have integrity they know that they're lying they know that they're not whole they know there's something like in their head, you know, like in like the whole Donald Trump thing of winning in business is cheating other people. Well, someone knows that. And when someone's doing that, there's what they've done is they separated into a bit of guilt. Um, and then there's separation of the self. And because of that, um, they have to operate in two worlds, two selves. And so, um, like, who are you? If they have a confusion of who they are, um, because they're operating in two separate places, um, and so how, how do you, like, how do you navigate when you're in two separate places? But an acceptance of guilt means that there is room for improvement, because there's an acknowledgement of imperfection in in that scenario. Yeah, but but that that then it wouldn't be so much guilt because they tend to feel guilt because they don't face up to it. But an acceptance of what they've done, acceptance of acceptance in terms of, I suppose it's forgiveness, but it's forgiveness of then like, okay, I've done this wrong. I accept that. And I move forward differently. Oh, acknowledgement you mean? Yeah, and also, and part of acknowledgement has to be the change because if if you're not the changing, many people will talk about feeling guilty and talk about like apologize without ever changing anything. So it's sincerity. So if, if the person, if there's an expression of sincerity, then you can bridge 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 gaps because yeah. that leads to a belief that. There's a, that you have acknowledged and you're sincere about um, making amends. Yeah, if they if they become um, if they achieve integrity. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is is that the heart of that introspection, which is based on willingness to be honest and truthful and see what's really there, as opposed to being in denial? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, why, why do people deny? Because they don't like what they see, because they don't want it to be true. So that's so like a coping mechanism, then. Yeah, it, it's it's um, navigating from emotional rather than logic. Because what do you mean like it, it feels bad, so they they ignore it rather than reasoning. Yeah, because they don't want to accept it and they don't want to feel that, so don't accept it. Just deny it. I think it's because they can't be asked to make the change as well, maybe. 
Yeah. Which comes about. Well, I was just going to say that's a key point about emotion because I think that because emotions are so powerful, people don't necessarily realise that they've made that decision. Supposedly that a lot of the time, if not most of the time, that would be an unconscious decision based on I feel bad and then they've just unconsciously decided to go into denial and turn away from that pain. Yeah. Um, and it, and really, it all comes about to it is that people can't can't be, can't be asked. But part of that is because nobody, like we have twelve years of school minimum, um, and we learn all all kinds of useless facts, um, or waste our time copying down composers' things <laughs> in music. Um, and yet, how many of us were taught about emotions? How to manage our emotions? Um, how to deal with emotions, particularly boys, told just not to have them. You're told to you're taught to suppress them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and so, like the whole thing of men in relationships, um, is that men typically don't communicate as well, um, and it's just because men have. have, have been held up to have fulfilled this role, um, never been told that they should or how to communicate. So some can, some can't, but most can't. And women are taught not to reveal their sexuality. They are to keep a lid on it. Yeah. Um, yeah, so there's that whole thing. There's also women Women were always not allowed to speak and so they tend to be more manipulative. Um, and so there's this... Women manipulate, men can't show weakness. So there's this mismatch of communication. Men are not supposed to cry, show weakness. Yeah. I wish that 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 teaching of emotions and communication was part of the curriculums in school. That would avoid so many social issues as well. It's yeah. so related. Mm-hmm. But, and other I, suppose, things. I suppose the thing is that you have to look at it, how new it is that we've actually started studying emotions. Mm-hmm. I think like the, you look at the time when I went to school, um, there was no, no such word as emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's very basic research on emotions i mean psychology is only 150 years old mm. as a discipline mm. um so we don't know anything and schools i mean schools are run by politicians who are selling <laughs> yeah selling the, the idea i mean you have the education system that's run by a minister that isn't qualified to teach <laughs> um, so it's and it's all based on a political ideology and it's not even necessarily one that they believe in it's just one that they think he's going to sell. Mm. Yeah, traditionalism to a certain extent. Mm. Mm. Can you us? Yeah. But also education started out as being not about the, the whole person. It was about a conveyor belt of workers. <laughs> yeah. And, and um, yeah, so it, this is really like when I talked about the Think Free Rebellion, that's really what it's about. It's about unless you fight for your own thinking, for what serves you, you're going to be at the mercy of 
what the church said in the old days, what the government says, what the media says, so that you buy their stuff, you strengthen their organisation, their institutions, um, and some politician, you know, even the idea of the hills that we, we die on. If you take the lowest figure, 630 people were killed on one battle, on on one general or one even like chief of staffs for their political aims. When you look at all of the wars that have been fought, um, what really for? For some politician to have more power, to have more um, control? Whereas really most of the people um, in a country, doesn't really matter who, who, who the king or the government or whatever is, we just want our own little land to be able to get on with our neighbours, to be able to get on with our community. And yet the whole history of war has been lives lost for the person who wanted the throne, for the person who wanted the extra country. I mean, we, we've now reached the stage where, like, we don't sort of dominate and conquer other countries. Um, so we, we don't need that whole power and force thing. Um, and yet relationships are still based on that thinking. They're based on forcing people on controlling behaviour that I don't like instead of dealing with your own ability to have that discomfort. So the notion of a liberal, liberated relationship is a new concept then? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, when you look at the whole issue of divorce, has mostly been, been because women didn't feel free. It's predominantly women that initiate divorces. It's predominantly women that um, felt unequal. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really, I mean, a relation, nobody gets into a relationship thinking, right, I want to be controlled and influenced and manipulated. Um, they go, I want to be in a relationship so I can be more of myself. And then it's just a matter of, does that partner create the relationship where I can be free to be myself? Or do they try and li um, limit and control me? But also, um, even if someone says and tries to be liberal in their thinking, um, there are times when you'll find that subconsciously they hark back to some of the norms that you are trying to keep out of your relationship. Um, and they creep in, you know, and even though they may be said jokingly, <laughs> you know that there's some intent behind it. <laughs> you know, like, okay, there's the expectation. Uh, if you get married, you should change your surname automatically. You have to be Mrs. So-and-so. Um, if I had thought about it, I would not have given up mine. <laughs> but anyway, it's gone. Uh, things like that. And it's you're, you're expected to fit in and to do those things without thinking about them. And if you think too hard about them, then you're either being subversive to the whole concept of matrimony and what it's supposed to be, and you are fighting against the norms and to what end, because the, 
the question then is, why are you fighting against all of what um, is normal for the rest of us? And so, you, you, you know, is it a fight worth, <laughs> worth, worth fighting? Mm. Well, if you're really honest about that, like the, the custom of someone's surname, why is that important? And for most people, for most people, it's because of what, what will other people think. Which yeah, and I did it. And, and of course, you think about it. Okay, family, and it's easy as a unit to have, especially if you're having children, everybody has the same name. I don't want to change mine. <laughs> that is a set point. I'm not changing my name. I mean, yeah, my maiden name is boring, but nonetheless, I like it. So, you know, I should yeah. have... <laughs> I should have kept Why it. do you not want to change your name, Miss Stella? I don't want to change my name because my dad is is my hero. If it wasn't for my dad, I would probably be dead by now. I can say that a man is going to give me as much or be that person that is always there as my dad is. So it doesn't make sense for me. What what do you think of that, Alex? You should get married. Sorry, are you <laughs> no, that's all right. Is this well, a hill you're going to die on, Alex? Uh, my, my second, my second name is How'd You Go, which is is broadly unpronounceable and practically unspellable. So no, I'm definitely not going to die on that hill. <laughs> I'm to inflict that on anybody who didn't want it. <laughs> See, I don't like my surname either, so I would. I don't dislike it, but I, I don't mean to. Uh, I don't mean to impress a lifetime of having to spell it out phonetically on anybody else in the world. So, but Alex, don't you think she should be proud to take on that burden to climb that hill? No, it's, it's, it's not. It's not. I have to spell my name here. I'm in the UK. Yeah. I have to spell my name every day. I have to spell mine. <laughs> um, personally, it's not. So, it's not something that's that's important to me. Um, so, you know, I guess. I guess, kind of, you know, going back to your back to your theme, Rob. You know, that's that's a fight that I, I would choose not to pick. I suppose. I have a very good basis. <laughs> <laughs> but there are some, but there are some groups where that would become a subject of of contention. Some families, and mm-hmm. um, you would think, yeah. That, so very I, important. And I had a friend that had a fight with her almost husband at the time because she said that she didn't want to take his name and they had a massive fight over that. She did not take his name in the end. They got to the their honeymoon hotel and said, Mr. Mr. and Mrs. I don't know which, what his name is actually, but they said his name. And he looked at her. See, I don't know what your point was because everyone will think that you have my name anyway. <laughs> but yeah, they had a massive fight over that, and I was like, "It's oh, okay, right <laughs> now." So I think, I think really, it's about um, what are the real reasons, and then really honestly, what are the reasons, and then it's just for the couple to to decide, um, and. So the difference between, like, wh- whenever there's a problem, it's because of how you feel, and then you have to match reality with a different story until you find the story 
that makes sense and makes you feel good with the same situation. And so for couples, it's, I don't, I don't think, I, I mean, when you look at why those customs are, um, I mean, that was really about ownership of women. Yeah. Um, it was about the woman not being their own property. Mm. The chattel law still exists in some places, you know. Mm. I used to get it when I was in Jamaica. Oh, you know that it's just the old laws on the books. They haven't removed them. But yes, he needs to sign this for you. And I'm like, what the hell? No way. It's not happening. <laughs> no, it's not happening. Uh, I spoke at my wedding and everybody was just totally... Oh, she had to do that because, you know, the bride doesn't speak. Oh, I spoke. <laughs> Look at her face. Really? Good for you. The not... bride doesn't speak. <laughs> you would have to speak. <laughs> Estella. In Portugal, they do. No, no, I wasn't. No, they, I'm not expected to speak. The groom gives a speech and um, the bride just smiles. Well, this bride was not having it. She spoke. Well done. <laughs> insisted at, my sister insisted at her wedding on uh, on having a speech and uh, and my other sister, her maid of honour, did a speech as well. So they had the groom's speech, the bride's speech, the best man's speech and the maid of honour's speech. Brilliant. And, uh, yeah. Brilliant. They can shower absolutely killed naturally. They took the <laughs> <laughs> they women power. The yeah, no, they did, yeah. <laughs> but I, th I think it's it's um having the uh, many of those discussions before actual marriage, though, Rob. And if I remember my situation, who we spoke to was the priest. An unmarried gentleman who had no clue about marriage, who was trying to tell us about marriage. It was, now looking back at it, hilarious. Feels like education minister all over again, doesn't it? <laughs> Precisely so. That, that's the same as um, priests giving couples therapy. Kind of, in my country that happens. Mm. And I was like, but in what basis? They don't allow priests to marry so in what basis are you going to give couple advice? Because because the, when you look at the history of the church, yeah. um, the story is Moses went into, like, wasn't it the fire or something, and he, he took out the, and he wrote the, on the tablet the, the Ten Commandments. Um, mm. So the whole Jesus um, and the Pope is ordained and, and is Jesus' representative like in the Catholic Church. Um, so that's the story, um, the, the story of the Bible. Well, it was a book written by men. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet, but what happens in society is that um, when you make something important, sacred and certain, I think is the other one, it becomes immune to um, no one can question it. So like even like the pageantry around the Queen, um, is it, it, the whole purpose of it is so that no one can question it. It becomes like the emperor's new clothes. Mm. What was that oh. word you just used, Rob? You said it's it's what? Pageantry. Um, yeah, like the pageantry of the queen around the queen of like other ceremonies. You because said no one's going to stand up. Certain or um, sacred. Uh, what is it? Sacred. There's three things. Um, I can't remember where I got it from, but sacred, certain, and important. 
means that something is never challenged. Um, and so when you have sacraments of religion, and, and it's like people say, oh, you like you can't question religion because, um, you know, nobody's allowed to question religion um, because when it's questioned, um, you know, like science wasn't allowed to question religion for a long time. Um, and because it, its power comes from not being questioned. Um, and so the power of the church is so strong that things that make no sense, like priests, even the fact of priests not being able to marry, that, that's a story. And then that priests know, even though, even in the face of so much abuse and um, when you look at medieval times, how they were, how corrupt they were, um, and yet even in the face of that, because you're not allowed to challenge that narrative, they have, they are got direct conduits of God. Mm. Uh, so it all depends on the story. And it's knowing, like the whole thing of Think Free is about people who have something to gain, as in church, government, everyone, um, they protect their stories by making them unchallengeable. And another way they do it is by humiliating, humiliation. And, and fear. I mean, yeah. fear is yeah, I mean, when you look at, I mean, Hitler um, did essentially the same. Is He made himself, like their religious things, had Hitler instead of Jesus. Um, and they had to treat Hitler as if he was Jesus. Mm. Um, and you use force, fear, um, and Ostracization. He gave you ostracized people. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But so in that regard, then, um, cultism then becomes a force against which free thinking, and I'm putting all of the various types of groups which um, are organized in around mind control, well, mind and physical control, um, if you're truly, if you truly want to be able to look at oneself and one's place um, in the universe, then you really have to be able to um, remove the shackles imposed by any of these groups and be willing to test theories, tests, test all manifestations of, of, of rules and uh, um, whatever you want to call them, mm. um, guides, whatever, you know, things that are put out to circumscribe how you live your life. And I think that maybe in today's society, when there are so many examples of people who are able to do that, people who are constricted by these rules, um, have serious conflict and um, and really wonder, uh, probably spend a lot of time wondering about happiness. If living such an organized and such a restricted life based on all of these rules, if you can truly be happy and if what, they, if what their experience is happiness, true bliss, true whatever it is, versus what they're seeing of from those who seem to abide by none of these rules. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I think the the core of happiness is freedom. Um, and yeah, anything, anything like I think you just have to look when you when you feel bad, you just have to look, and you have to look at what is control. And control can it be a partner in a relationship. It can be someone you work with, but anything that is control is where someone is trying to make you be their idea of what they want you to be. It's, it's parents, like, you know, parents, however much they love you, they've got an idea of what's best for you. Um, and, yeah, so, so the core of it is self-responsibility, is that which means, which goes back to, you know, the whole thing of depression and people not wanting to face up to things. And the core of that is that we have to take responsibility for everything, the good and bad, because otherwise we've given control to something, someone or something else. So if we say it's the circumstances, if we say it's someone else, um, what that means is we've given away our responsibility and we've given away our ability to change it. And at the centre of that is a sense that we are able and worthy, which is for some is the definition of self-esteem. So I think we give away responsibility when we feel that we we aren't able to make a a competent response. Yeah, yeah, and and in so many ways we're told that we're not because we grow up with all these big institutions and with teachers and things who seem to know more, um, and so we grow up with everyone around us knowing more than we knew like as as babies and children and so we end up stuck we we end up believing more in them than in us and there's a point of adulthood which is really i think alex came up with that which is really where you take control and you take responsibility and you take control of your own story and if you don't do that then you can't be happy and you um your relationship like you can't the relationship is an extension of your happiness but some people seem to be content to move from one well as you say from the parents the control of parents to the control of school control of church control of in, various institutions and their life is dictated by one after the other or a combination of at the same time heaven so it's like they're sleepwalking through life but that's because ultimately underneath they feel that they feel that they are not competent so they hand over that control to the school church government whatever exactly so this is what democracy is based on what's that so it's what democracy and politics is based on it's based on um i vote for this person who can, like the whole thing with Trump, because people really believed that they needed him to make America great again mm-hmm. um, because they don't feel that they can do it for themselves because they feel small in comparison to the laws. Mm-hmm. When you look at whether it's Brexit or whether it's Trump and, and whatever, actually, um, in our lives, whether we left left Europe or we stayed in Europe is is not going to make to each of our lives financial terms is probably a, a, a make a difference of a few grand whereas the 
potential we'll have for um, this career or that career, um, which can be tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands or, or millions in some cases, is our success or failure is far more to do with us than it is with the political or the economic landscape. But if you do not feel that you are the best person that you can be and you feel that you are a victim of whatever it may be and you have somebody um, giving you what seems to be a promise of something better, then you are going to cling to that because it makes you feel superior once again. It makes you feel good again in yourself. And um, that's the American experiment at the moment with Trump, with what Trump was promising, um, in particular, disadvantaged um, uh, poor whites in, in the rural parts of America. And people on the outside looking in America cannot understand if they were to go into the rural. I went to university in Alabama, okay? And so I can tell you, <laughs> I've been in the boonies. <laughs> and I'm telling you, you want to see poverty. You want to see people who are ignorant of the world. The number of times that I had to explain that I came from a sovereign country that was not a part of a state. It's not Jamaica Plains, New York. It's <laughs> a country in the West in the Caribbean Sea, you know, et cetera, et cetera. They have no clue about anything beyond the borders of America or their state. So their place in the world is compromising the first place. And what he was promising them was that they were going to be reinstated into this position wherein as the founding fathers seem to have thought that um, the poorest of the white man there would be superior to all, all others in, in, in America, no matter how poor, impoverished, uneducated he was. And that's what Trump reignited in them without explicitly stating it. Mm -hmm. And so now they're going to be crushed once again Hmm. And it's it's sad. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think everything in our, our world from school, from the media, everything tells us that we're small and, and it's it's down to someone else. It's down to economics, it's down to politics, it's down to whatever. And that's why people get so um, irate. Yeah, so I, I agree with that. That's a lot of the victim narrative that's been sort of uh, shoved about, whether it's with race or sex or gender or, or sexuality. It's, you know, you're a victim, which is completely disempowering, which is the opposite of obviously what we want. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I agree with you. And people aren't being encouraged or taught to actually think for themselves. No. It's, someone said a quote, the, the most, um, uh, the, the biggest challenge or something like that, um, the most revolutionary thing you can do is think for yourself. Um, 
but the ability to think for oneself um, is okay. If you if you if you are on if you are a hermit, maybe that's why people became hermits in the past, where they could think unfettered, without fear of you know any sort of um, retribution or you know they could think the most scandalous thoughts. But now we have several fora that we can use to explore, even though you have this cancel culture thing coming into play nowadays. But nonetheless, you can um, find ways and means of exploring your thinking, be it passively just by listening or engaging like how we are now without fear of being labeled, um, you know, subversive or whatever um, sad term may be applied to us. But once again, I think that is something that is actively discouraged from you are young. So many of the questions that we are now asking, if we had the opportunity in our youth, we could have asked and be better equipped from very early in our, in our growth. Mm-hmm. For example, even at university, when you go to university, you're discovering what it is to be free of family and home. You're exploring your sexuality. You're doing all kinds of things and stuff. But there, nothing, nothing in terms of <laughs> any kind of um, insight, be it a, a, a trusted person to even have a conversation with. Uh, I, mean, I was lucky in that at my first year at university, uh, I was 18 and um, the psychiatrist at the university clinic set up a peer group, a peer counseling group. And we, my friends and I, we all became um, part of that group and we stayed together for four years. So we would go on retreats. So we would discuss issues. And if people came, you know, fellow students come to us, we would have at least we would be able to listen to them. We couldn't give counseling or anything, but we could at least listen to them and, mm-hmm. you know, be, be there for them. But by and large, many people don't even have that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then it becomes kind of ingrained in you that the natural thing to do is to keep it all to yourself because you you are not accustomed to talking to anybody and to share and to share and to share issues. Yeah, I, I think that's um, so. I think what what really motivates people is is feeling um, is sadness, like feeling unhappy is is where it. Re- and I think as a culture, we've reached a point where the levels of suicide, depression, anxiety are so high, um, and is. Part of it is to do with expectation because people didn't used to expect any better, um, whereas now we're expecting, like what we're what we're living and what we're expecting aren't matching up, and so this is why we're suddenly starting to look into these things. Um, but then, then it goes back to a bit of Maslow's hierarchy of where physical needs are most important, and then um, moving up to self-actualization and so on. So I think it's, I think society is much better um, and it will grow, but it will grow, part of the way it grows is through pain and through conflict. 
But I think we also have to acknowledge that we are not unique. I mean, our circumstances may have variations on it, you know, our stories, but we can always find people who have elements of our experience that we can have some commonality and we can, um, on that basis, have a discussion or, you know, find a way to look at how to, if it's only to even feel better and to feel that, okay, fine, I'm not alone in this. If, if, yeah. if nothing else, it's not that you're seeking a solution, but at least you know that others do understand your plight. I think the great crime of our culture is it's made us feel that we're the only ones. Mm. People feel like a, a divorce is a personal failure. And yet 55% of marriages end in divorce. So you're not in the minority, but that, pressure to feel like a failure shuts you up so no one talks about it um yeah um and also i think one of the ways i look at it is every human problem has somewhere been solved by someone and you can find any example and there's someone who's done it um yeah exactly and which is why I think Facebook, a lot of the social media does more harm than good. Because you go on it, people spend hours on it, but what you see on it does not this does not reflect the issues, or it puts a sticking plaster on it, or it um, romanticizes it uh, and takes away from the seriousness of the issue. It mm. compounds your feelings of of unworthiness and mm -hmm. self-esteem, etc. Mm -hmm. And so that's that to me adds another dimension, which is quite serious mm -hmm. to this whole. Hmm. I, I think that I think that is coming out though. I think I think the Trump thing is really good because it is showed um, the, the whole problems in America that were covered up by sort of political correctness and. And it also showed that the, the the how social media and also like the COVID thing with all the conspiracy theories and all the different um, ideas that then um, so I think these these are all going to be worked out, but we have to have some pain from it to in order to see through it. And when you see like the social dilemma and the, and the people are coming out about how it's gamed and engineered to um we're really just recognizing that facebook isn't providing this service to make everyone feel good but they're doing it for money and we are the product and therefore um they're engineering and manipulating us for their own ends um, and it's just recognizing that everyone from the companies that advertise to the governments that the politicians and the governments who want to be in power to um the church who, who, who needs us to believe in them to exist, that all of these are working for their own agendas and not ours. And that one cannot live on virtual friends alone. One needs to get real friends. <laughs> Until we have virtual reality anyway. <laughs> until then until then and we are totally immersed in it then that's fine but right now there's a separation between reality and the virtual world and i suspect that for a while yet we still want to feel touch hug a real life 
I can't hug a computer. It gives me no. It is funny that you say that because I was talking to a friend yesterday and she has a cousin like 21 years old and he's really struggling because his social skills and the, his friends, they don't know how to socialize. And now with COVID worse. And so he doesn't really interact with anyone at, at present because it's all machines and they are not taking advantage of mm. certain things that we have now, like Skype and Zoom and whatever. They don't know because, and they don't want to call friends, which is really weird. They don't yeah. speak on the phone. They don't feed, yeah. Because yeah. they don't know how to. And I feel it's really, really sad. Mm. It's really sad. Have you seen Simon Sinek's talk on millennials? Yes, I think I saw that. I've seen it, yeah. I think so. Yeah, that, that was brilliant. Um, just about, you were talking about, like, when everything's too easy. Yeah. Um, um, yes, but, yeah. sorry, I've seen the one, actually, yeah. But, yeah, the real things are take more. Really, what we get out of life is what we give into life, mm. um, from relationships, from life, from career, everything. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's that willingness to do the work. Mm. Many of them and, and, and then just to wrap up that that willingness is about what heals mm -hmm. well rob your services will be needed for, for, <laughs> for a very long time <laughs> we can start a, a social project rob we can we can start a social project <laughs> You with your therapeutic side, and I'll start with the social side. <laughs> I start a project. I think they have, I've seen some of them, um, some of these young people, and they can't even look you in the eye. They have, yeah. they find it very difficult to look you in the eye. It's very difficult for them. I think it's probably too intense for them. I don't know. I don't know, though. Is that different? It's different in the sense that um, um, I, I think they feel very, it's it, yeah. There's a difference. I find I find that there's a difference yeah. because it's it's a, along with the inability to actually even ask a question. It's not about shyness anymore because uh, I'm not talking you know the gangly 15, 16 year old. I'm talking even older than that. Yeah, because mm -hmm. their eyes are always on the screen of the, the phone, mm -hmm. texting. And so they don't speak on the phone and they don't they don't have to look at you, even no. if they're on um online, they're doing something or zooming or skyping or whatever. They're doing things with the other person. So it's not about sitting and actually looking and focusing yeah. on a person's facial ex, ex, um, expressions or anything. They use em yes. emojis as emojis. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They don't yeah. have to express. Yeah, yeah. 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 At the, at the risk of making a, a, a wide and offensive generalization, I suspect. But I think also, you know, when you, um, when so much uh, gratification is kind of got from, from social media and from presenting this kind of, this picture perfect view of yourself to the world and that's who you are, there's a real, um, there's a real fear of being vulnerable to somebody. So, you know, um, meeting somebody in person, speaking on the phone, speaking over video, you know, you don't get that opportunity to kind of pretty it all up and, mm -hmm. and say the right thing and always post the right picture. It's like, well, I might, um, you know, I might spill coffee on myself or I might, you know, get the wrong word or not know what to say. And, and you know, that, that can be very vulnerable if you're not, I don't know, um, 
if, if that's kind of something that you usually kind of hide behind or, or if that's where your main source of gratification comes from. But you're right. You can you can't shut off a real person, but you can <laughs> shut a computer down or exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Mm. That's interesting. Mm. Okay. Well, thank you for for being here. It's nice to see you, Alex. Yeah, it's lovely to meet you. all. thank you for uh, yeah, thank you for having me. <laughs> So, um, <laughs> right, well, I hope to see you next week or whenever you're free. Lovely. Yeah. What's, next, what's, what's next week? Um, I had a few topics down. Um, oh. I think um, I was thinking looking into integrity, compassion, um, like all those individual qualities, a little bit more refined. Yeah. Um, so I think probably that. Yeah, that's good. I'm also going to change the name of the group back. Why? Because when I thought about it, so so really I changed from relationship whatever to think free that because then when I thought about it really, when someone doesn't know anything about it, the think free rebellion seems like, what's that about? I don't want to be in a rebellion. <laughs> um, so I think as a, as a, as a point of meeting someone, um, having a discussion around relationships is more relevant. So this is more my philosophical thing for people later on who sort of understand a little bit more about Building what relationship about. skills. But, um, yeah, so I, I think I'm going to change it back to talking about relationships. So, or something ah. like honest talk. So it, it, <laughs> the, the ideas behind it are still the same, but I know, I know. <laughs> you appealed, you appealed to my sense of, you know, rebellion. <laughs> You're going back into the establishment. How can you? <laughs> the honest relationship rebellion. <laughs> rebellion against the rebellion against traditional relationships. Mm. <laughs> no, it's okay. D I, yeah, well, maybe it's discouraging a few people from actually joining up. So, uh, well, yeah, because I, I think otherwise you're, you're like when you when you're you specific say on like meetup and you're looking up and you go, oh, I don't think we lost that now. Well, yeah. it's the same people who would be yeah, interested that, in discussing, yeah. like all of you, like you came through um, from that. So, yeah, I think that's the next stage. Well, 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 well if you say so. <laughs> well, see, I, I, I was also thinking about it. I think the book, so I've got a couple of books I want to write, and um, one of them I was going to call The Relationship Mindset. But now I'm going to call it the stories we tell ourselves about relationships. But actually, there's something about rebelling against the norm, though, in terms of creating a, 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 an evolved relationship. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because you have to re rebel against many of the strictures that we now find govern how we approach or inhabit relationships and... There is a rebellion against that. So I would hold on to that rebellion word. I love it. Yeah, no, the rebellion is the philosophy. Mm. Um, but it's just when you confront someone with a philosophy, you, um, you're not 
they're not understanding what it's really about. So you give them like what we're actually doing, talking mostly about relationships. But then um, as they come in, they learn the like the philo philosophical. But someone doesn't get that the first time that they look at it. That's so, true. Yeah, yeah. So I, I was jumping from what we're about, which was really about sharing with you. Um, but that's not the first thing someone's interested in. So the spirit is still the same. But Rob, whether you change the name or not, you know, the discussion has evolved to a point wherein if they haven't, if somebody's new, title or no title, they still don't have the foundations. Yeah. Well, I, I've also got an entry. So um, um, like an entry point of a relational, okay. is it relational mastery? No relationship with heaven and hell. The think free rebellion is the second part. Um, mastery, path to mastery, three expectations I haven't done yet, and one other one. But it's the point of here's five things to learn about us. Um, so yeah, that'll be the, the point. Okay. Anyway, okay. Well, have a good have a good week and hope we see you next week. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.